Okay, I'm going to call to order this uh, regular meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education. Um, the first item on our agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The second item on our agenda this evening is the budget hearing for the year, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Fulton and Russ for that. Yeah, this is the final step of the 2021 school year budget. Um, it published in the paper and ran us for 10 days. So this is a $482.8 million budget that you're approving tonight. There has been no changes since uh, the publication of the budget. Thank you. Um, it's my understanding we do not have anyone here to speak to the budget hearing presentation tonight. Is that correct? No? Okay. Um, so we open up to board questions or no board questions? No board questions. Mm -hmm. Just the yeah, hearing. Yeah, we're just the hearing. Okay. Well, that was very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then we move on to the regular portion of our meeting this evening. Um, I'll seek a motion for the adoption of the agenda, item 4.1. Move approval. Thank you. Is there a second? second. Thank you, Ms. Coburn. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Carrying down, that passes 7-0. Item 4.2, approval of the minutes for the regular meeting from July 27th, 2020. I'll seek a motion for approval. So moved. Is that Ms. Emery? Thank you. Is there a second? Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. And then item 4.3. Ms. Housley. Yes. We have a question. Did Terry, did you? On the first motion. That was Dr. Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, you're fine. The masks make it a little hard to hear, and I knew it was Mary, and I should have said something. Um, so, item 4.3, approval of the minutes for the special meeting on August 6th. Do we have a motion? So moved, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? Sinclair. Thank second. you, Dr. Sinclair. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none. We move on to the public comment portion of this evening's meeting. Um, what we're doing right now is we're scheduling aside a 30 minute window for public comment in order to be able to have the public be in the room to make comment and to hear comment and then we allow or we're able to notify staff to then be here at six o'clock when public comment ends and then that gives a period a window um, that we don't need that much of a window to turn the meeting over to clean the seats or do whatever but it's just it's a set time so that we can schedule around it so there's some confusion on that at the last meeting so I wanted to clarify we're just making a set window for public comment. It's 30 minutes, that way staff knows when they can come in to be in the room for the rest of the meeting. So tonight we have one public comment, but we still have 30 minutes of public comment. So Ms. Feingold, you're here for our public comment. You have the podium. This is kind of a, I'm Lisa Feingold, I have a son at North, blah, blah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, anyway, this, this is related to the budget, but I wasn't sure exactly where it fit in. Um, so budget documents do more than just present financial data. They enable districts to directly connect their financial decisions to their goals for student, school, and district performance in areas that need improvement or support. 
The budget profile provides districts with the opportunity to show how their allocations of resources translates into accomplishments and challenges for consideration. So for over a decade now, SMSD's Accomplishment and Challenges section of the budget profile has listed legislative underfunding as its singular challenge, with the exception of 2014-15, where advocating for all-day kindergarten was added. Compared with Olathe, Blue Valley, KCKPS, DeSoto, Topeka, Wichita, and Lawrence, to name a few, SMSD is the only district that chooses to not list any additional challenges, such as aging buildings, need for bilingual staff, achievement gaps, sped staffing difficulties, meeting social emotional needs of students, transportation cost increases, benefit package increases, increased needs of free and reduced student populations, just to name a few examples. In the past, when I've asked about the limited number of challenges listed in the accomplishments and challenges section of SMSD's budget profile, I've received various answers, including, but most recently, that as a budget document, we focus this section on the financial challenges we are facing. This year, I expected to see at least a few of the COVID-19 related challenges mentioned in previous district discussions, including staffing concerns, the potential of possible unbudgeted custodial overtime, PPE needs, and just to name a few. SMSD is missing a valuable opportunity to more fully articulate the challenges and accomplishments of the district as surrounding districts regularly do. Naming challenges is not something that a district should be afraid of. In fact, identifying challenges is how staff support students. In the future, I hope to see SMSD make the most of the opportunity to provide a more accurate description of its challenges as a way to measure both the commitment to addressing them as well as the successes that can surely be achieved. Thank you. Thank you. And so now we're going to take a break until 6 o'clock. Thank you, everyone. All right, it's 6 o'clock, and we will resume the meeting. Um, time for 5.2, the superintendent report. So we'll turn it over to Dr. Fulton. Okay, thank you very much. Well, it's great to see everybody this evening. Thanks for coming out. You know, we're all focused on officially starting the school year and welcoming students back to learning. Since our last meeting, families have made their learning model selections for their children. Teachers have also indicated their preferences for teaching within the learning models. Throughout this week, we are working on aligning staffing based on need and staff preference forms. We're going to be sharing a reopening update later as part of this board meeting. And at that time, we'll share more information as well as uh, continuing to share information with the community in the days to come. And we encourage parents, staff, and community members to contact their home school or ask the district with additional questions. And we're really grateful for our school principals and office staff who are working hard to help get ready for the next school year. We have many, many staff around uh, across the district who are working to prepare staffing assignments along with learning resources and spaces for our students to learn. While there is uncertainty, certainly, our objective remains the same that each student will have a personalized learning plan that prepares them to be college and career ready with the interpersonal skills that they need for life success. And we're confident that we'll be able to uh, continue with learning regardless of mode that we're in. Most importantly, I also want to thank everyone who is dedicating their creativity, their energy, their compassion, and their un unrelenting care for students each day in order to make sure that school resume, resumes and uh, learning continues in a safe manner. So thanks to everyone for their work. 
Well, speaking of uh, teamwork, we're thrilled to welcome some of our newest members to the Shawnee Mission School District. Last week, we had New Teacher Academy. New teachers and those returning to the district gathered in socially distanced groups at the schools where they attended the New Teacher Academy. The three-day academy included time with mentors, tours of new work environments, opportunities to meet new colleagues, as well as professional development about curriculum, instructional resources, and best practices. And we're so glad to welcome all these new teachers to our team, which is working to make sure that uh, we, every single Shawnee Mission student uh, finds success in their learning. The Kansas Foundation for Agriculture in the Classroom has honored Heather Brown, a Belinder Elementary School second grade teacher for excellence in teaching. She is one of four educators honored in the state for the exemplary way that they have integrated agriculture into the classroom. Ms. Brown is recognized for incorporating vocabulary, reading, writing, math, and science into Tower Garden lessons. And for those of you that don't know, Tower Gardens are gardens that grow vertically, allowing a large number of plants to be grown in a very small space. At the conclusion of these lessons, about their tower garden, students enjoy a student a uh, salad party, so they get to eat their science experiment. So we just want to thank Heather for her, her outstanding work. I know it makes a difference in the life of each of her students. Then through, uh, through tremendous community efforts, our pickup and go meals continue to serve as a nourishing and enriching experience for our students. And I want to make sure that you know some of these uh, highlights that go with the pickup and go meal program. This summer, our partners at the Johnson County Library have donated books to students at pick-up-and-go meal sites. Students from Shawnee Mission North's Coalition of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, the CORE group, provided snacks to families. Musicians from the Kansas City Symphony and Shawnee Mission Northwest student musicians, alumni musicians, and music teachers have been performing for students and families as they pick up their meals. And of course, our food service department, safety and security department, administrators, nurses, social workers, paraprofessionals, teachers, librarians, and numerous volunteers have been making sure that our students have the meals that they need. We're so proud of all these community efforts, and we want to thank everyone who's contributed their time and their talents for the benefit of our students. And that concludes my report this evening. Thank you, Dr. Fulton. Moving on to item 5.3, the board members' reports. We'll start with Ms. Borgman. Do you have a report for us from SMAC PTA? I do. Um, so SMAC had a meeting last week virtually with its board, and um, the SMAC PTA would like for all PTA officers and members to know that SMAC is available for any questions or support that they may have. Um, Tash Davis is the SMAC president, and her email is smacprez at smac-pta.org. And SMAC is also organizing some PTA president roundtables with SMSD cabinet members, and I will be representing the board so that's it thank you and thank you to Tash um, she's phenomenal she does a lot of work she's she phenomenal she's great in her district yes um, moving on to Miss Embry do you have an update for us from the Education Foundation no updates we meet uh, Wednesday okay great and Reverend Guy from the KSB Board of Directors 
The Lunch and Learn opportunities are continuing, uh, I think weekly, so check on kasb.org to their website to find out what the different topics are, if there are things you're interested in, you're available. Those are very informative and there's opportunities to ask questions of their legal staff and just hear from other school board members throughout the state. Um, they're also beginning to have conversations about what we're gonna do about the annual conference in December. This was a great opportunity that we've availed ourselves of in the past to go as a board and to learn all these great breakout sessions. And um, it's looking less and less likely that big conferences and conventions are gonna be able to be held. So they're scrambling to try to figure out what we might do instead. Um, that is also the annual business meeting, election of the new incoming president, and all of those things. So uh, we will be meeting as a board via Zoom later this month and hopefully we'll make those decisions about the December annual meeting. That's all. Thank you. Um, Dr. Sinclair, do you have one for us as the legislative liaison for KSB? Uh, the legislative committee typically assembles um, sometime in August and then again in November and I believe the working plan is to gather the legislative committee on Saturday, August 29th, remotely to begin identifying issues for the 2021 legislative session. Okay. Thank you. Um, Ms. Goodburn from the Policy Review Committee. Uh, we have a meeting scheduled for this Thursday at three o'clock for the Policy Review Committee. I also wanted to add really quickly, um, I'm the KSB nominating committee representative and we will meet on Saturday, September 12th to um, vet the candidates that then will come forward at whatever type of December meeting we have. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm on board to go to that meeting on September. So it's gonna be an in-person meeting in Topeka, Saturday, September 12th. Okay, thank you. And then um, Mr. Stratton, uh, do you have an update for us from the Finance and Facilities Committee? Yes, we uh, met recently, and I'll have Dr. Sinclair give the updates since she's in the room tonight. Okay. So the committee met August 3rd, and we actually had a combo of in-person and online. Um, everyone was able to um, join in in the meeting. And um, I could, uh, Dr. Fulton, do you want me to kind of hit some of the highlights or wait until after a presentation? Okay. Um, so the... Um, we gathered a few more um, frequently asked questions to be folded into that um, developing document regarding finance questions. And so we'll continue to work on responses um, through that committee process. But the bulk of the meeting was around facilities issues. And so we opened our conversation up with uh, just identifying some anticipatory questions around the district's um, uh, intent to pursue a bond. So we kind of flowed through a number of questions there. And we spent um, a good deal of time talking about kind of the pros and cons. If we were to pursue a bond, um, whether that would be in November on the general ballot or um, January in a mail-in and identified some pros and cons of that, um, mostly that while uh, the, the list of Cons was a significantly longer for the November ballot with concerns of, of a very crowded ballot and, and being able to convey a message with the benefit of not uh, having a cost associated with that. Um, the list of pros was much longer for the January mail-in ballot, particularly given time to message and to answer questions and um, 
to allow for kind of clarity of participation just focused on the bond. Uh, there would be a cost to that mail-in, but that could be paid for out of bonding authorities. So there was, um, with that, knowing that it wouldn't, if uh, the bond were passed, that there was um, not a lot of um, concern, extra concern raised about that component of a mail-in ballot. Okay. Is that, um, Mr. Stratton, is there anything else you can think of? No, thank you. That's a very good summary. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate the participation of the committee members. Thank you. Work. Okay, that closes our board reports, and we're moving on to the strategic planning update, item 6.1, and we'll turn it over to Dr. Fulton for that. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, in June, we met and, and had a rather uh, detailed conversation around our strategic plan as it related to a potential bond issue. As you'll recall, in our strategic plan, when it was approved by the board in what is now in June of 2019, we identified going out for a bond issue in January of 2020. That was delayed for a couple of reasons. One was we wanted to make sure that we were able to complete our study on reduced workload at the secondary level and think through how to fund that in a, in a sustainable and responsible way for the long term. And we also wanted to make sure and, and do an updated enrollment projection study so that when we did in fact select bond issue items that we were doing so in a carefully thought out and responsible manner. Now as, a, as another component of preparing for a potential bond issue, we wanted to go out and conduct a community survey. It's normal for districts to do these types of surveys when they're considering bond issues. They're extraordinarily helpful, particularly if you uh, ask questions repeatedly from, from one administration of the survey to the next. So tonight, I'm very happy to bring forward uh, Mr. Ken Sighart, and he is the uh, founder and principal of Patron Insight. He's gonna provide a report to you on what he found out in the community survey. And I think you also wanna share something about your background uh, that may be of interest to this group in terms of maybe where you went to high school. Uh, yes, go Vikings. That's all I can say. Okay, but I'm, if I say the year, you're going to start doing the math. I don't. I do not want that. But it was a while ago. Um, so yes, it's really nice to be here with you uh, this evening. This is, I think, Patron Insights' third opportunity to do this type of work with the Shawnee Mission School District. So it's near and dear to my heart. I'm not going to make you go through the big text that uh, I uh, sent along. Uh, in PDF form and hard copy form, but I do have a, my copy in case we get into some conversation here and you want a specific answer that's not on screen. Uh, really, I want to highlight kind of the areas that we uh, addressed in the survey and what the results were. So if I don't goof this up, ah, there we go. Well, I want to start with, uh, as it says here, a little housekeeping. Um, we talked to 500 registered voters, 100 per high school drawing area. Now, in that case, was probably a little bit too much in some areas and a little bit too short in other areas. But we wanted everyone to feel as though they had equal participation. And so that was why the decisions were made. We used landlines and cell phone numbers, as we always do. 
purchased from an independent source. So nobody could say the district picked out only people who would like what they have to say. Uh, potential respondents were selected. This is all the, the all all the nerdy parts up front. Okay, the participants were selected based on the every nth number approach to make it even more random. So first number on the list, eleventh number on the list, twenty-first, uh, and then when we got to the bottom and needed more, we went back to the top. Um, as I said, 100 interviews in each of the uh, high school drawing areas, and the margin of error was no higher than 4.9%. I say no higher than because with that little oversample and undersample, um, we kind of counterbalanced that with 500 interviews. Because if we did 400 interviews just across the spectrum, it would be 4.9%. So everything you see here when you see a, a percentage, add and subtract 5%. And that will tell you what the current views are about that particular topic as of late July of 2020. Uh, part one was grading the district's performance. It's amazing what you can find in Google Images here. This is Warren G. Harding Senior High School, 1939-1940. And the student did pretty well, by the way. So. We grade uh, because we want to give people an opportunity to kind of get their feet wet on the survey and understand that all they really need to know to have is an opinion. Things they've heard, things they've experienced. It gives us a snapshot of what people think the district's real strengths are and where it may need a little bit of uh, attention. So 17 different factors. It sounds like a healthy list, but really we only tell them how to answer one time and then we just read that list, which is rotated, I'm part, sorry, I said no more nerd, rotated so that it's not always in the same order. Um, uh, 12 of the 17 factors plus the district's overall score scored a B or better. And by that I mean the statistical equivalent of B, remember that margin of error. On the plus side, there was really high satisfaction with what happens at the classroom level and at the building level. So the reason that school districts exist, people think you're doing a good job, a really good job. Uh, growth areas are engagement, 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 and pretty much I could say that to almost any school district we work with. Uh, there's always more opportunities to, to seek out uh, ways to engage with the community. The ones at the top I'll, I'll let you take a look at. We convert things to a five-point weighted scale so we can look top to bottom. Uh, you can't get an A. That would require everyone to say A, and nobody has not happened since 1992 in about 300 surveys. So we look above and below a B, and you can see that these are all well above a B. Uh, teachers, very high quality of education, availability of technology, safety of students, which by the way, Dr. Fult was mentioning uh, longitudinal review. That was the only one that increased by a statistically significant level. It was at four something the last time we did this, 4.04 or something, but it jumped all the way up to 4.35. So something must be going right. Uh, and then preparing students to be college and career ready. So again, at the top of the list are those factors that are reasons that schools exist. So very good scores. Um, and this gentleman is quizzical about three factors at the bottom of the list. Uh, district's record on fulfilling promises made to the community involving citizens in decision making and class sizes. 
And really, again, those are engagement issues. Um, if you have an engagement opportunity and the person didn't know about it, to them it never happened and you're falling short of the mark there. So those are always going to be toward the bottom because they're kind of squishy. But uh, these are not bad in class sizes. It sounds like, based on conversations with Dr. Atha and Dr. Fulton, is an educational opportunity uh, about class sizes uh, that uh, perhaps um, perhaps they don't merit a 3.45 in some buildings. So. Uh, then we always like to give people an open-ended opportunity to say what they think the district does really well and where it could improve. And I'll just let you look at that list. Then these are open-ended and we code them based on common words, phrases, or ideas. Because otherwise the report would be like this thick with all the comments. And you can see uh, kind of a, an echo of what we heard uh, in the grading on the plus side. And it's always encouraging to have don't know be the number one on the, on the negative side because it means that a good chunk of people are not sitting around festering about something the district has done or hasn't done or has changed. You have 170 out of 400. Uh, need to stress academics over sports kind of comes in out of left field for me. Uh, budget is always there. Pay teachers better is usually there. And by usually and always, I mean in other districts we work with. Budget is always at the, near the top. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a good portfolio, if you will. As I look at this and kind of compare it, you know, kind of institutional memory to the district, this district, and to other districts, this is off to a really good start. So now that we've given them a chance to talk about individual things, like quality of education and technology, we want to see where the brand is. What would they, how, how would they talk about the district? They wouldn't talk about uh, necessarily uh, its availability of technology in those words. So we present a series of statements that uh, we want to test to see if they agree with them or not. And that kind of characterizes the district's brand. Purportedly, these were said by others, but they weren't. We just wanted to test them. Uh, and because that's an easier way to get people to react than to say, what do you think about this? It's, what do you think? This person, somebody else said this. How do you feel about this? So we get a better, a better quality of answer. You can see that high school graduation rate is almost 100%. Um, Teachers support staff working as a team with one goal, second on the list. Uh, personalized instruction, I mean, this is right in your wheelhouse. This is kind of what you're looking for. Uh, does believe in taking care of the whole child academically, socially, and emotionally. And facilities in the district have kept up with the changing needs of students. Uh, some places that's true, and in some places that's an opportunity to educate. So then we move to uh, the uh, the ones toward the bottom of the list. And I wanted to point out that as you look at these numbers, it's important to remember that the three, these four areas had fairly high, in, in our estimation, don't know percentages. So we were combining the strongly agree and agrees to get the percentage first. So when you look at 54% for keeping the bond promises, you, you might go, oh no. Does that mean that 46% don't think we are? 
Well, no, 30% don't know. So that, again, is a communications opportunity. Uh, central office building, open and transparent about its plans and finances, and overcrowded. Buildings are overcrowded. So, again, I always want to look at that. In fact, you're a, you're a, you're a strongly uh, disagree and disagree percentages were really low, really low. So we had a lot of don't knows on these areas and a lot of, um, you know, neutral answers too, meaning, which is kind of like meaning I don't know too. So good, good brand and opportunity to um, kind of look at the things that suggest that there may be an opportunity for um, attention. Uh, so we kind of we're coming into the uh, coming into the for a landing here by moving to the project review, and we do that by saying explaining in somewhat exhaustive detail what the district has undertaken to this point, uh, who's been involved. Uh, what the discussions have been about, and that this survey, the purpose of this survey is to see what a broader constituency feels about the ideas that have been discussed. We then present each of them uh, in terms of very factual statements, no selling. You're not going to say, like one board member asked me one time, not here, uh, said, uh, Ken, can we say, uh, we, we want to build an addition so that the small school children who are currently in the trailer don't have to put on their hats and coats in the winter to go in and use the restroom. And I said, no, that's sales language. We can't do that. We have to talk about class sizes and things like that, you know, things that they could find on a website, not, not uh, seeking the pity vote there. So we said, we, again, they are presented individually, and then we say, if this was on a ballot issue, would you be more likely to vote in favor of that ballot issue, more likely to vote against, or would it make no difference to you? And I'll just let you look at those. Um, yeah, it's, uh, some of the uh, ones at the top are, are sort of uh, slam dunks usually uh, in questions like this. Everybody wants HVAC and roofs to be in good order. Um, restroom upgrades, we, we, we talked about. Um, replacing furniture and fixtures at the high school and middle school level. I don't see anything here that would cause me a concern. If we had a 58% uh, more likely to vote in favor and a 42% more likely to vote against, it'd be a little red flag for me that something isn't clicking in the message about why that's important. So that would be a decision. As it stands right now, these all look pretty good. In fact, as I said there at the bottom, the most likely to vote, the highest most likely to vote against was on the furniture and fixtures at the high school and middle school, and it was only 25%. So um, it sounds like the people who did the work to come up with this plan um, are kind of hitting what people really are, um, if not excited about, appreciative of, and feel like it's a good, a good idea. And I don't know where part five went. It uh, became part six. All of it. I just noticed it's sitting out there. So it's not hiding in uh, you know, the deep state or anything. Um, after we did that, uh, presented all the ideas, we said, all right, if the bond issue was, election was held today and it costs you $22 in additional taxes per year for each $100,000 of home value, would you strongly favor it, favor it? 
oppose, strongly oppose it. Now we had some lean favor, lean oppose, but we didn't read those to the person being interviewed because we don't want anybody to sort of cop out. But if the person said, well, I kind of support it, the interviewer put them in lean favor. Um, so we start with the highest possible number that we wanted to ask about, and you can see 63% said they would strongly favor or favor. Plus or minus five, you're in a good spot if the election were held today. Um, so uh, that's really a good starting point. It's an excellent starting point. Those who could not strongly favor or favor at that level were asked about an $8 level for fewer projects. Uh, we don't specify the projects. That's your job. Uh, we don't want to you know, paint you into a corner by saying, if we took out this school and this school, how would you feel? That's, that's, your, that's your job to do uh, because you know the facts. And that we jumped all the way to 78%. So we jumped 15%, which is way clear of our margin of error, meaning it made a difference. Now, these numbers were used to provide a sort of a, a stake in the ground. That doesn't mean as you make, you know, have your deliberations, it has to be 22 or it has to be eight. But you see, there appears to be a little wiggle room between eight and 22 uh, in terms of support. So, uh, but you, you could go with those exact numbers, one of those exact numbers. When we went to no tax increase for even fewer projects, it was 83%. That's not a statistically significant jump. So uh, it was essentially the same score as the $8 increase. So it's good news. And in case you're wondering, does anybody get uh, 83 or 84? We did a survey for um, Lee Summit last fall, and the survey came back 81. And I started sweating bullets because I said, that's really high. They got 84. So uh, they got 84 because they did the hard work, of course. You know, this is, this is your, your, your roadmap of a sort. So they did the hard work. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was like, oh, really? Okay. Uh, so, oh, it's not going to let me show my, my coffee cup? Okay. All right. I had a coffee cup for the last slide that said questions, and it, it, the steam was coming off of it, and it was so cool. But for some reason, it's not. So uh, questions or comments or concerns? Do any board members want to start off with some questions? Mr. Stratton, I can't see you, so I'll just ask. Do you have any questions for Kim? No, thank you. No questions. It doesn't. Oh, Miss Embry. Yeah, I'm. I'm just curious. I know you mentioned that you have done this longitudinally for SMSD, and you called out a place. I think it was student safety that had actually increased since yes. the last time you have fielded this survey for Shawnee Mission. I'm curious if there were any other big changes besides that, either on the up or the downside, downside that we should be aware of. Well, that's a very good question. The last time. The leadership wanted to limit those questions. So there's, there's only a handful of those that were done back in 2014 also. And those that were, were either, you know, like 0 .5, 0 .05 higher or lower. Uh, it's really static. Uh, and that's good in most cases. It's really static. Um, but about half of these were not asked in 2014. And that was an administrative decision at the time. So nothing went down uh, at a statistically significant level. It's just sort of, you know, a little wiggle up or a little wiggle down. But um, there's some consistency here, very much so. Okay. And I'm curious, too, sorry to make you harken back to six years ago, but 
This number, 63%, would strongly favor or favor a bond issue. Mm -hmm. Knowing you did the similar data in 2014, how does 63 compare with where we were in 2014, knowing that went on to pass? is I'm, good context. I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. I will, and I will send it to Dr. That'd Colton be great. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. If and we're starting from about the same spot, because that would give us some comfort. And, and the researcher in me wants to see what the survey said and what the final result was. I know it was a success, uh, but uh, so I'll do a little Google searching for that part, and I'll look in our files That'd for the other part. That'd be great. I think it'd be helpful. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Dr. Sinclair? Uh, I'm going to piggyback off of Ms. Kavola and Ms. Embry's questions um, and then ask one more. Is that would the, in following up with the, where we were with the bond, whether, you know, 63% were in favor, would that, would we also want to look at the no tax increase bond? Because I believe in 2016 that was a no tax increase bond. So would that be, would we need to be concerned about comparing is that an apples-to-apples apples comparison, or? I'll do. I will do uh, everything we have in our files, and that way you can take a look and see where it is. I just know from memory, institutional memory, if you will, that it came back strong yeah. both of the other times, okay. and just how it compares to what the final vote was. Uh, I'll, I'll just do a little work on that. Um, and, and get back to you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and could you also remind me that on part four, the project review, you probably said this, but just again, the list of items on the bond, those were generated from the list of projects, is that from the $750 million kind of projection of items? Is that where this list came from? It, it, it is. We, we kind of tried to gather things yeah. together. Categorize them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, once told a, I once told the superintendent, you're not getting the doors on the back, or locks on the back door in the survey, okay? Uh, that's not important. So we said up to six schools uh, being, um, you know, re replaced uh, and things like that. So, yes, it was through that. And we were very diligently with the great team here to make sure that the wording was um, inclusive of, of the major projects. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's um, up, like up to six, and that gives us some opportunity then to say fewer projects mm -hmm. and get people get in their mind, well, maybe that doesn't mean, means no, not six. Well, and I appreciate our community's value in things like HVAC, lighting, and roofs, just making sure the bones of our facilities are solid is really good to see. Um, I do have one more question, but I can wait if we want to go around the horn and come back. Okay. Um, anyone else have any questions? Ms. Goodburn? I don't have questions, but I was on the board back I know. And, and I'm going to I'm, I'm go before, out there and say that, okay, I think I, I remember that, I, I don't remember the exact percentages, but we did have a favorable response to be able to go out and do a tax increase bond issue, I believe. But the decision was made at the time to not do one. Mm -hmm. And I believe it passed the bond at around 85%, mm -hmm. but, but somebody in the room might want to correct me on a few, but I, I know it was in the 80s somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what our percentages were, but I remember having the discussion of whether we wanted to do, whether we wanted to do a tax increase bond issue at that point, but I think we had what we wanted to be able to do and wanted it to pass at a good percentage, so. 
I, mm -hmm. I don't, I think that's what I remember. I seem, I seem <laughs> to remember that was, that was the case. Yeah, I just don't remember the exact percentages of this. I will, you, you've now given me a fun challenge. Okay. So I'm gonna look all that stuff <laughs> up and make a graph and something like that, you know, <laughs> and nerd out tomorrow. Um, okay, so I'm not sure if my question is for you, Mr. Designhart, or for Dr. Fulton. Um, just looking at the the areas for um, continuous improvement, because I think that's a an underpinning of public education and education in general is looking at continuous improvement. So, looking at the slide six, I think where the, we have the list of factors that our community is looking for, maybe a little bit. Um, more attention. Um, so the district's record on fulfilling promises made to the community. Would, just in your experience in being a superintendent, looking at these evaluations, having the long-term planning for the bond, laying out kind of an 18-year plan and having a 10-year strategic plan, do you see those going hand-in-hand -hand with being able to address I mean, I would like to believe that that's the case, but, I, you know, that's I, from a day-to-day -day basis. Do you see that as... Yeah, it's, it's very important when you're dealing with a bond issue or a strategic plan to keep those, those ideas in front of people on a regular basis. So, for example, um, the issue of safety came up as being uh, statistically significant. Well, when you look at everything that was done from the last strategic plan and the bond issue that went with that strategic plan around that whole notion of safety, there was a lot. People obviously paid attention to that. And I think it was also something that we probably talked about. So they're aware of what happened with uh, our safety plans. And I think that that's true today as well. If you, if you keep that in front of folks and you help to tell the story about what you've done with that bond issue money, it really helps uh, kind of keep it into the community memory. And so that's, that's part of our work is engage folks in not only what this future bond issue may include, but then once it's done, keep it in front of folks. So they're, they're mindful of the notion that in fact, we have followed through on our commitments. And you, you do see, typically as you do that, you, you will begin to see that data begin to rise. Now, I, it's, it gets, I think the bigger the district, the more difficult it is to get your story out. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the other challenge we face is size sometimes can be an advantage, but on communication it makes things a little bit more challenging. We just have to continue to, uh, as, as Ken has said, engage, 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 mm -hmm. and keep refining our, our methodologies, our strategies for engaging people in the conversation around our schools. Thank you. It's good feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, so uh, based on the information presented and um, other information the district has gathered, do you, Dr. Bolton, do you have a recommendation for the board with regards to the bond? I do have a recommendation, and I promised you that when uh, Ken came and presented that I would have a recommendation for you as a follow-up to that study. At this point, looking at the data, and understanding that we are in the midst of trying to get schools started for the 2020 school year, and knowing that that won't happen until after Labor Day, uh, the November date is, uh, is gonna approach very, very quickly. And my concern is it's really almost too fast. You know, we wanna make sure that when we 
do this bond issue that our community is fully engaged, absolutely informed on everything that's going on with this bond issue. So my recommendation would be that we look at a January date. I think that's consistent with what the uh, Finance and Facilities Committee talked about the other night. Um, I think November would be a fine date too. It's just we want to make sure and get the information out there. You know, we've talked about transparency. We have been transparent. And this is part of our continued effort to make sure and inform our community about uh, next steps in the life of our community. So I'd recommend uh, January as a date for a potential bond issue. And then along with that, I would recommend that we work with the data that we, uh, that we heard about tonight. Think about what the right approach might be. Is it plan A? Is it plan B? Is it something in between? And let me work with that a little bit and then come back to you at the September workshop and have us spend time at that September workshop really laying out the best path forward. And at that point, I'll, I'll come forward with you with a specific recommendation on what I think the best strategy might be. So that would be my recommendation. Go out for a bond issue in January and let me come forward with a specific recommendation at the September uh, workshop regarding what that bond issue would look like. Okay. Thank you. Can I ask just a, a brief question of Dr. Fulton? Is, at that September meeting, will we also have clarification about our community engagement and communications plans leading up to that January election date? Because I think your point is very well taken that there's a lot of noise right now because of everything happening in the world. There will probably be more noise come November with even more happening um, in the kind of political conversation. So how do we make sure we educate and engage with our community leading up to January around this, the importance of this bond issue? Absolutely. We can, uh, that's an important piece of this. You want to make sure that people have the information that they need. And I think by that, by, by delaying it to the September workshop, we'll be in a great position to come forward with a definitive plan on how to engage the community. And then would you mind Dr. Fulton addressing the cost? I know Dr. Sinclair touched on it, um, but could you address the cost associated with the January bond? Absolutely, and they, they talked about this at length in the Finance and Facilities Committee. If we were to place uh, this on the ballot for November, it would not cost us anything to, uh, to, to do that, okay? It'd be free. Um, but if you go in January and do a mail-in ballot, we have to incur the cost of that. And the, it, it costs $250,000. Now, you can, you can uh, pay for that out of the proceeds that come, come about as a result of uh, passing a successful bond issue. So it can be written off against a bond. Now, there's freeze always best, but I think what's even more important than that, though, is making sure that we're effectively engaging our community on what this bond issue is about and why it's important. And again, you can write that off against uh, the proceeds from the bonds. It doesn't come out of the operating fund. Thank you. And then historically speaking, when you have a mail-in ballot, what is the voter turnout typically like? Um, I would have to look that up. It's not going to be as high as it would be in November. But, uh, you know, again, part of the discussion was is there's a lot going on in that November ballot. And this isn't something that you want to get lost uh, in the shuffle. Sure. So uh, I, I don't know the answer definitively to that question. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Ms. Goodburn, did you have a comment? Again, I'm going off my memory, so I'm, not, I'm going to wait till we have the data on that one. But I, re I thought I remember it being fairly high for a mail-in ballot. But mm -hmm. 
Anyway, probably not as high as a presidential election, though, in November, but anyway. Yeah. Um, I'll just say I, I have concerns about the cost, but one of the things that was stressed by the community was engagement and making sure that we were, you know, inviting them into the conversation and making sure they had the information as to what was going on with the district. So, I, you know, the the benefit of meeting the community's needs to be engaged in the process and to get the information that they need to make an informed decision. Um, you know, I, I hate to spend the money, but in any event, it's useful to have the data from the community and what they're prioritizing with regards to how they make their decisions about the district. And so I think that that's, that's useful information to have. Agreed. Um, if I may add too, you know, um, I, I've always been impressed given the methodology that Ken and companies like his use, I've always been impressed at how accurate they are. I mean, these things are usually pretty spot on, plus or minus a few percentage points. So uh, you can take the data that he has kind of to the bank, really. And, but, so, but the data's always just a starting point. When you look at, for example, the percent of people that would support a particular idea whether it's a no tax rate increase or a tax rate increase, it's really, really important that you not assume that that's what's going to happen. You have to make sure and get that, that information out to your community so they're fully informed when they go to the ballot box. Go ahead, Sarah. Okay, so I just pulled up the election history. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> while we were sitting here. 31.69% um, 30, turnout. It passed 82%, uh, no 17%. So I believe... I believe I'm reading that correctly. Thank you. FYI. I tried to look up the presentation from 2014, and I got through um, six months' worth of meetings, but I did not see the presentation in the board doc, so he's going to have to check his records for us because I didn't, I didn't see it. Um, but in any event, I think we're ready to move on to 6.2 reopening school update, unless there were any additional final comments or questions I missed. No? Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, very good. I'm going to switch places just for a minute. We're going to have a team present on kind of some uh, highlights, some hot topics that we're dealing with on reopening schools. And I'll have each team member introduce their, themselves, their name, and their title when they come up, if you don't mind doing that, please. And they all know the order that they're going in. So I'll start off, and then I'm going to hand it off to Shelby Rebeck, district nurse. So let me go up real quick and get us started. Okay. Well, you're not surprised to see this slide. You know, the most important thing that we do in our school district is focus on students and their learning. Doing so in an, in an equitable, inclusive way matters. We're going to need to spend a lot of time this year really focused in on our learners. How are they doing? How are they doing academically? How are they doing socially, socio-emotionally? And that is true regardless of what mode they're in in terms of learning, whether remote only uh, learner for the semester or whether they're doing work in class, either maybe one day when we're able to bring everybody in, great, in a hybrid approach or if they too are remote. But our mission drives our behavior. Also driving our behavior is this deep belief that these three interconnected ideas make a difference in the life of a child. The notion that they're going to have an individualized learning plan, as we said at a previous meeting, really comes alive this year, doesn't it? Because now we're choosing the mode in which we're going to learn. 
And they're going to learn, they're going to develop a lot of personal resilience on mastering these important competencies. We're going to put a lot of emphasis this year on mastering those priority standards that make a big difference in the life of a child. We're going to have to measure that. You'll get reports on that. We want to keep you fully informed based on the data and the evidence that we have available on how our learners are doing. And then finally, of course, we need great citizens, don't we? Working on those interpersonal skills that make a difference. My apologies for that. Um, we have been uh, c continuing our, our study around issues of creating safe work environments, learning and work environments. Uh, we're continuing our work on learning as well as uh, improving our operations in a COVID-19 world. So we want to give you some updates and along with that a few recommendations tonight as it relates to safety. We're going to go in depth a little bit with the gating criteria, learning. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the sign-ups that we uh, have engaging uh, parents and, uh, and students and staff in, activities and athletics, and then some supports we want to provide to our staff to help them as they do this essential work of helping every child learn. And then finally, we have an update for you on ventilation. Now, there's lots more work than this going on. This is your highlight for tonight. And now I'm going to turn it over to Shelby, and she's going to give you a uh, kind of her her expert overview on not only what we're doing for health and safety, but also how to interpret some of those uh, gating criteria. Well, good evening. As Dr. Fulton said, I'm Shelby Rebeck, Director of Health Services. The last time I was here with you all, you had some questions for me that I didn't have the answers for at that time. So that's where I'm going to pick up uh, tonight. So you all had asked about temperature checks. We did get guidance from the Kansas Department of Education and they said the temperatures can be taken anytime prior to entering the building for the first time each day and that districts may consider providing thermometers to families and educating them about screening for COVID-19, which if you remember was what I had suggested we do, that we provide a self-assessment that students, parents, and staff can go through each morning before coming in. So, um, and as far as providing thermometers, that is something we're going to look into. Um, and there is no requirement. Someone asked me that last time about documenting the temperatures, so that's good to know. As far as masks, um, I believe I've been saying all along that five-year-olds and up would be required to wear a mask, but the Executive Order 2059 states that all students will wear a mask, including faculty, staff, vendors, and visitors. Um, so there are eight exceptions to that requirement, and they're listed there for you. But this does inclu include preschool students, and I do believe that was a question last time. Um, so we are, uh, all students are going to be included in that mask requirement. And then also, um, we had said, I had said, that there would be a time for a mask break during class, where if the kids were at their desk, they could take their mask off if they were quiet, not talking but the executive order does not allow for that. So we are going to follow that executive order. And we did change our reopening plan to reflect that. So you guys had asked me too about isolation and quarantine guidelines. We have not officially received those. We expect them tomorrow. However, uh, we did talk through them with the county health department. So again, isolation is when someone is ill um, and that would get you 10 days at home from the onset of your symptoms 
or 24 hours fever-free, whichever is longer. And that could also be 10 days from a positive test if you're asymptomatic. Quarantine is when you're exposed. And um, so you would be quarantined at home 14 days from the last exposure. And then just so you all understand, there's various scenarios that exist if it's a household exposure. So we would always work, the school nurses would always work through those. One major sign or symptom of COVID is going to get you in isolation. So that's fever, cough, shortness of breath, or a new loss of taste or smell. Two of the secondary signs and symptoms will also get you put in isolation. And I've listed out those symptoms there. If the parties are six feet apart and masked, there is no quarantine required. But we will quarantine if we see two cases in a cohort. So if you're looking at a bus um, and there's two cases or a lunch group that um, eats together, we would quarantine a group like that. And then positive cases in a classroom, everyone will receive notification of the positive case, but close contacts will be talked to by the school nurse with instructions for quarantine. So this is the main reason I'm here tonight is to talk about gating criteria. If you recall, this is what the county put out, and I only put it in here for reference in case there's questions, but this is the chart that we put together that we felt like made more sense for Shawnee Mission. So I'm gonna actually start at the bottom. Um, Dick Kramer is here tonight, and I know later he's gonna talk with you about the extra and co-curricular activities, which for Shawnee Mission match exactly our academic gating criteria. Um, and then the, that middle row, Shawnee Mission School District Learning, we decided not to start with the gating criteria of elementary and secondary being separate or different. Um, Dr. Fulton has said numerous times that we wanna take this slow, we wanna do this right, and we don't wanna overwhelm people right at first. This is gonna be a lot. When our teachers come back in, to have full elementary classrooms, I think would be a lot for them. So it's not that we may not get there, it's just that right now to start out with, we feel like this is the best approach for us. And then that top row is the gating criteria. And I think the most important thing to understand about this is that there are two criteria to move per section. So we're actually gonna look. Here we go. All my helpers were coming to rescue me. Um, so this is the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment, their Tableau site. And you'll notice at the top, we're clicked on gating criteria. That's very important. The first chart is your percent positive. So if you look over here, 10.3 is the number that you want to, I don't know if you can see my cursor very well. Sorry, that's really small on your screen, but 10.3 is that number for today. So today we are at 10.3% positive. If you recall, that puts us in red the remote, over 10%, right? But if you look down here, all you have to do is look at the trend line of the new cases, that second graph. And you can obviously see that it's trending down and or maybe stabilized just a little bit. 
So we didn't meet both gating criteria to move out of whatever, you know, if we were in hybrid, we're not moving out of hybrid because we didn't meet both gating criteria. Get out of it. <laughs> Three fingers to the right. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, the best news that I have for you is this graph that I put on here. So this is super top secret. You guys, I'm pretty sure are the first people seeing this outside of the county health department and the school nurses. But this is a page that the county health department has created. It's kind of behind the scenes right now. It's not live. So this is a screenshot. But it, they're going to create a safe school reopening page. And it's so easy to read. I mean, it tells you right there. Current school reopening phase, yellow. This was um, data taken on Friday. The percent positive tests on Friday were 9.8. And the new cases trend was decreasing. So we're obviously in yellow or hybrid. So that's the gating criteria. And I think later we'll ask questions, right, Dr. Fulton? OK. Good evening, everyone. My name is Mike Schumacher. I'm the director of secondary HR in the school district. And Dr. Grumman and I are really excited to share with you some information about our learning models and then some information around some new data with students and staff and talk a little bit about what staffing will look like. And that's the wrong direction. Excuse me. Um, so real quickly, you guys have seen this previously. Um, and just a real quick update. Um, students and parents were given an opportunity to choose between two different learning models. Uh, I will start with the first one, the easiest one to address. That would be the remote learning model. Um, if students or parents chose this model, this is the one that they will stay in for one semester. Uh, and that's, that's where they will be. If students chose uh, the in-person learning model, of course, in reference to uh, Shelby's and Dr. Fulton's um, discussion around gating criteria, they could exist within one of those three modes. And so either remote, hybrid, or in-person. So um, I'm sure you want to know what the students chose. And so I'm going to kick it over to Dr. Grumman, and he's going to talk about that data. So, uh, Dr. Dan Grumman, uh, Coordinator of Assessment and Research. Um, so we opened the survey to parents um, through Skyward. Uh, I think it was around July 28. We um, gave them a window of approximately one week. Uh, the, the, the form itself um, was turned off on August 5th, which was last week, Wednesday. But then they've, uh, uh, schools have had some opportunity to, to, to reach out to parents, make individual phone calls, those sorts of things, uh, even from Wednesday all the way up. You know, in, in some cases, phone calls are being returned through the weekend. Um, so the results, the, 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 the attendance preferences snapshot as of the end of the day Friday, um, if, as you look at this, the, the, the dark orange at the bottom are responses that, that are, are, are non-responses yet. So uh, we, had, uh, we, we were able to reach and get responses from well over 90% of our students, but there are, um, there are still some that are, that are um, left blank. The lighter orange are... Um, Student responses where they chose in-person learning uh, following the gating criteria. And the gray bars at the top is the number of students who chose um, remote-only learning for the semester. So you can see across each grade level, there's uh, somewhere between 500 and 650 students per grade level uh, choosing, choosing rem the remote, remote option. 
Uh, at this point, the, the students who we haven't received a response from, we went ahead and defaulted those students to in-person learning. Um, at some point, we had to decide uh, to, to, to put them some direction so we could begin uh, scheduling and, and staffing and, and those sorts of things. So that's, that's where we've uh, defaulted those students for now for planning purposes. This next chart shows those responses um, by feeder area. So, uh, for example, in the east area uh, feeder uh, group, 78% uh, of those uh, students are, have selected the in-person model, 22% uh, remote. As you look across north students, 37% remote, 30% in the northwest area. Um, and then on the other category, other includes students that, for example, would be going to Horizons High School or Arrowhead where there's not necessarily a specific feeder. Um, but the, the, the remote option selections range somewhere between that, um, with a primary, you know, somewhere between 24 or 22 and 37%. So there is some range, uh, some difference by feeder in those selections. This graph shows uh, those responses by grade level bands. So uh, pre-K, we have about 31% of our students selecting remote. Elementary, about 37 or 30%, and so on. Um, one, one, one note to kind of point out, uh, to, to think about the scale of this, particularly with the students selecting remote. There's a total of 7,838 students. Um, it's actually slightly higher than that with some of the, the, the small changes over the weekend. but. Um, 7,800 students, that is, uh, if, if I, when I look back at the, the district sizes across Kansas, 7,800 students would be like the ninth largest school district in Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, if I were just looking at the high school numbers, it would be the, uh, about the third largest high school in the state of Kansas, just looking at a remote student population. So there's a lot of schedule changes that are going to have to um, going to have to happen here in the, over the next few weeks as we as we uh, separate the, out the, the remote learning plan students uh, and the in-person schedules at the same time. But there's, there's, there's a lot of movement happening in the, in the background. Dr. Schumacher is going to talk about the uh, staff preferences. That's me. So I'd like to take a second to talk a little bit about the staff preference form uh, that we issued last week. So last Tuesday, Dr. Fulton uh, emailed our staff and notified them of some FAQs around what the staffing plan would look like and then also gave them a form to fill out. So that occurred on Tuesday. Uh, principals began contacting staff and reminding them to complete that survey. And we gave them a deadline of Friday. We wanted to get that information to us very quickly so that we could start making some decisions around staffing. Our staff responded incredibly well. And you can see that by Friday and a little and a few over the weekend, we've gotten about 2,100 responses. So that is nearly 100% of our staff. Uh, we will continue to collect those surveys um, as principals continue to remind them. But just a few pieces on the data, if you can see that. Um, the right side is the aggregate view of all of our staff. And you can see that 74% uh, of them chose in person while 8% uh, chose remote. If you kind of break it out by elementary versus secondary, clearly there's a difference. Um, elementary staffing, if you include pre-K, right around 80%, uh, saying, saying that they preferenced uh, in-person. And then for the secondary buildings, um, you know, that's 60 to 67% range. 
Something that we, at least I, was a little surprised with was the remote. Uh, we were hearing from a number of staff, uh, just anecdotally, that they preferred or that their physicians were telling them that, that they needed to be remote. So I kind of expected a little higher numbers, um, but I think um, what I believe occurred is the green part where they could do other responses. We had a ton of staff adding just some additional information, some contextual things, stating, yeah, I want to be remote, but I don't want to give up my spot at my, my home building. So um, just to, th that's some information on the staff pre preference forum. And I'm going to give you a brief overview, like a 10,000-foot view of what staffing is going to look like. Uh, moving forward, um, and so as you as you might imagine, it's a multi-step process, uh, starting with the student data, and so that's the first piece. We always say that staffing starts with student selection. Um, at the secondary level, that would be courses, and so what courses do they want? Uh, at the elementary level, that would be number of kids in a particular grade band at a particular school. Uh, the second piece would be the teacher preference. And so we clearly want to make sure that we're trying to meet the needs of uh, staff, what, what they prefer, what they're good at, what their needs are, while matching that up with student preference. Um, so those two pieces have come together. And one of the things that I'm really proud of with our team is that we had an initial plan uh, to staff uh, this, this remote program. But we've been responsive. We've kind of shifted gears. Uh, we've taken a look at this data, at the student data, and we realized that we needed to make a few shifts. Okay? Um, Friday, we spoke with Shawnee Mission NEA. Everyone's in agreement. We feel like we've got a plan together that meets both uh, students and staff needs appropriately. So again, real brief overview. Uh, at the elementary level, we are going to pull those kids who've chosen remote um, into a remote program. We're going, this is a little bit in the weeds, um, but we'll cross-entity them so they'll remain at, for example, Apache as their home school, uh, but they'll also be entitied at the remote program so that we know that they're, they're in that program. And then we'll assign staff to them, okay? Um, with the two caveats that we're going to make every effort to keep, in this example, Apache kids together. So if there's a section of Apache kids, we'll keep them together as a cohort and have, a, have an Apache teacher who's been reassigned to remote teach those kids. Um, if that doesn't work, we will try to keep them within feeder patterns. And so same feeder pattern, again, with a feeder pattern teacher. Uh, secondary, um, again, this was the big shift. Um, so we, we initially thought that we would pull kids into this remote program and then pull staff into that remote pro program. But what we've learned is that there's so many numbers, such high numbers of um, students who are wanting remote at, say, West, uh, that we can build a school within a school. And so that's the idea right now. We met with the secondary principals, um, and that's going to be their task, is to pull out those remote learners from, let's say, West, um, reduce the numbers of their in-person um, student population and run two master schedules, one with in-person and one with remote. Yeah. The benefit of this is um, kids at West, in this example, will get West teachers. Um, kids will be with West students uh, and vice versa. Now, clearly, we're not going to be able to offer all of the courses that those kids want at that particular school, but we'll be able to, again, in the weeds, cross-entity them with other uh, buildings. So. Let's say we can get them five out of seven periods at West, but then they pick up a course at East and they pick up a course at North, and they have a full schedule of remote. Uh, a lot of work to do yet, um, but the plans are in place. We're moving forward. Principals are on board, um, and we have a lot of work to do. So that's the staffing update. 
Um, I'll answer questions at the end, I believe, but I will kick it to Dr. Neal. Wait till the end. Thank you, Dr. Schumacher. Leanne Neal, uh, Chief of Early Childhood Education and Sustainability. Uh, I am pleased to share with you this evening some news that I hope you will find exciting and I hope um, will um, bring a glimmer of some excitement to the Shawnee Mission School District employees. For I would argue that all of us have for a long time believed that the work that our Shawnee Mission School District employees do is essential. I think the pandemic has helped us to really highlight the essential roles and responsibilities of all of our Shawnee Mission School District team, as well as the people doing like jobs um, all across the nation. So recognizing that many of our employees um, are balancing their um, desire to focus on this essential work of caring and serving the children of Shawnee Mission, but also many of them are trying to balance that with caring for their own children, particularly if we are in a hybrid or a remote model. There we go. Hybrid or a remote model. We went out to our partners, and I have to give credit to um, Johnson County Parks and Rec District and YMCA of Greater Kansas City um, for their willingness to have conversations with us um, and to do more than just that, but to really collaborate and to develop a program and a plan that we could bring to you to offer care at a very cost-effective, uh, we believe, rate um, for our staff members. Um, into the ability to do this, what we bring forward to you that you'll consider later in the agenda, would be a pilot program for the first semester. Um, but if we, um, after we review it, November, December timeframe, if we believe that it's something that we want to continue, um, if the need is still there, because we don't know what that will look like, say down the road for second semester, um, we would um, be asking for the ability to continue that waiver of those facility use fees to continue the program should we decide to do so. But in this program for hybrid and remote phases for our staff, um, we would be able to provide them care and the care would, the fee base would look like this. In a hybrid model for Shawnee Mission School District employees with children grades pre-K to six enrolled in Shawnee Mission Schools, for that hybrid week, they would be able to have three days of care inclusive from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. if they needed that and access to before and after care on those two days when they would be on site for a cost of $75 for that week. For the remote plan, it would be five days of care, again inclusive seven to six so that before and after care is included for a cost of $25 a day or $125 for the week. On the weeks when we would be able to be all on site, then the standard rates would apply. And our community families, while we would not be able to provide them access to this during the day care, they would be able to continue to access before and after care as they have in the pre-K wrap care as they have when we're attending on site. So that's um, an exciting plan. Um, again, I think it highlights the collaboration and the value that all of us feel around trying to support our employees who are trying to balance their own needs to provide great care for their children while being able to focus on their roles and responsibilities. During that, they would have access to meals through our meal program. We would also schedule them for the recess and outdoor time that they would need within the buildings. 
And if we didn't meet the minimum eight student threshold to be able to have the care at each building, we would look at co-locating that care site. Um, while we won't be able to provide transportation for them if we have to do that, because we've provided that inclusive seven to six care, they would be covered for that ability to drop off, get to their work site, finish their day, and get back to pick up. Wow. Thank you. Dr. Neal. Good evening. I'm Richard Kramer. I'm the Director of Activities and Athletics for the District. Uh, the slide I would like to talk to you tonight is how we have defined or high risk, moderate risk, and lower risk activities and the criteria that we will be using this year. This is based from the National Federation of High School Sports, which is our governed body. They govern all the state associations. And if you look here, to make this as simple as I can, because we use the same gating as the academics do. If you're a high risk activity, that first column there defines what that is. Below it are examples. That would be our football, wrestling, competitive cheer, dance, even would include performing arts, band, choir, and theater type activities. So if we were to have high risk activities, we would need to be in the green area. Moderate and lower risk activities can occur when we're in yellow or green. So for instance, if we were to have sports today, fall sports start today, we would be in the yellow and that would allow moderate and lower risk activities to start. If you're in a high risk, you would be allowed to continue to practice, condition, and then when we get to the green, then you could compete. So that kind of gives you an overview of those three levels, how they relate to our gating uh, criteria that we use for academics and now we're using for athletics. Thank you. I'm Bob Robinson, Executive Director of Facilities. I'm happy to be here tonight to talk to you about where we're at so far with our uh, plans for reopening of schools. Uh, we work closely with Children's Mercy Hospital. We've had for uh, five years. They do a lot of indoor air quality work for us, and we've worked with them when it comes to putting our plan together. We've also worked with uh, different HVAC providers to uh, come up with a plan and, and uh, the plan is ever-changing. This is the current plan. What we're going to do is increase fan speed where possible, in increase the level of filtration where possible. We're going from MERV 8 to MERV 11. Where it's possible, we'll go to MERV 13 in some critical areas. We'll increase the runtime to 24-5 of our HVAC equipment, and we're investigating air scrubbers and negative air uh, and there's a motion tonight. If you approve that, we'll move forward with that. I have Tyler Club with me here tonight if you guys have any questions. Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you, Bob, and all of the presenters. That concludes our presentation. I know the board has a number of questions, but before we start, I just want to make a couple of quick comments. First of all, I want to thank all of our team members in SMSD who are working really hard right now to uh, put together a plan that works. And I also want to thank uh, Shawnee Mission NEA because they've been a great partner in this and will continue to be, I know, as we work through various issues. Um, I want to make a couple comments. The, um, when we met and did our, our nearly over three-hour presentation to you, 
we talked in very clear terms about the importance of letting the science lead the way. We need to stay safe, and we're going to let science lead the way. Part of that means that we must and will follow the gating criteria that the county provides to us. Now, the gating criteria are guidelines. We've chosen, at least in the case of elementary students, to be a bit more restrictive than what the county uh, has stated could happen, and that we're going to go with a hybrid approach if it's in yellow versus bringing all students in. And that's perfectly fine to do. We're not going to exceed the guidelines. And so one of the, uh, one of the difficult, uh, difficulties as presented with that is in the realm of activities in athletics. At its core, we're here to, here to help children learn. Our academic mission is front and center in all that we do. Athletics and, and co-curricular activities play a really important role in supporting that academic mission. And so it's always difficult when you're in a situation where you can do some things but not others. But that's where we are right now in life, isn't it? We'd like to bring all students in. We can't. We'd like to provide all sports and activities. We can't. Unless we're in a, a zone where it's safe for all, all students and all staff to participate in those activities. And so we have been working both internally across the county, across our Sunflower League, and really actually we'll continue to work at the state level as needed to do the very best we can to make sure that uh, children aren't deprived of activities. But we are going to follow the gating criteria. Uh, we are going to have sports and extracurricular activities be part of and support our academic mission. Uh, the, the other thing I'd like to say is that in the course of uh, putting this presentation together, that we had some team members, especially Dr. Atha and Dr. Neal, working literally throughout the weekend to bring to fruition this notion of being able to provide our staff with some options to take care of their children who are students in SMSD so that they can focus on their work. You know, teachers, educators, all of us as staff members in education are deemed essential workers, and we are, and we're seeing how important educators are to society. And, but in order for us to get our work done, we need to provide our folks with some assistance where we can. So, uh, you know, this isn't an idea that started this weekend. It started months ago. We've been working on it for a long time. And so finally, I'm just, I just want to thank both of them for uh, literally spending a Saturday and Sunday putting the final touches on this so we could get this to you tonight. And with that, I'll open it up to any questions. Okay, well, I um, have several myself, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and take President's privilege and, and ask a question for my own clarifying sake. Um, I guess I can ask you, Dr. Fulton or Coach Kramer. Um, so we're right now, based off of the rates where we're at and we're in the yellow, we will not be having football, wrestling, competitive cheer, or dance, or band, or choir. We will be able to do conditioning for those sports, is that accurate? But not 
play the sports? We have the experts here to answer that. Perfect. So between, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I just know that this is going to be when we get all the questions on. So, I can speak to the athletic piece, and I'll have Bill speak to the performing arts piece. Perfect. Thank you. That is correct. When you're in the high risk, and we're not in green, mm -hmm. they are allowed to continue to practice using mitigated practices, very much like we're doing now in our conditioning. Mm -hmm. That would continue, but. Um, probably with a little bit more implements involved, but uh, they could not compete until we got into the green area. That would be for every one of those high-risk sports. For us, though, cheerleading, we're gonna remove the stunting from the cheerleading, so cheerleading now will be a moderate to low-risk activity because there'll be no stunting involved, so no touching, they'll be able to maintain their distance and they can continue to have that activity. Okay, thank you. Bill. Good evening again. I'm Bill Thomas, uh, Director of Performing Arts for the district. And the same thing applies. We're following the same guidances because, again, co-curricular uh, education is first. But when it comes to the sport of what we do, the concerts and all that sort of thing, they're going to take a back seat. We can continue to practice. Again, mitigating factors. Everybody wears a mask. We can still sing if we're wearing a mask. We can go outside and rehearse. Um, we're talking on your agenda tonight is the HEPA filters for the high-risk areas of band and choir to help out in those areas. Um, time factor, 30-minute long rehearsals indoors and then you know, move to another space. We're changing classrooms so that the largest group can have the largest classroom. Maybe it's the auditorium. Maybe it's no longer a band, choir, and orchestra room. Now it's whoever has the largest group can go to that largest room. So again, there's more space between the folks. So absolutely, these activities can still happen. But we're doing it a little differently because everything is different right now. But it's, we're all still good to go. Okay, thank you. All right, so just to be fair, why don't we go around the table and we'll start with Miss Embry. And, oh, go ahead, Mary, do you have we a... Wanted, well, I was just going to say, I had another sports question. Or do you want to... Yeah, so before I... Just keep all the sports... Thematically, maybe, so our good folks here with all the answers don't have to talk about the sports. So just for clarification then, if um, I have a student in, in cross country or in volleyball and we open schools in, in yellow phase, in that hybrid phase, those activities, those sporting events would be allowed to continue with all the mitigating practices in place. So a cross country meet, you might have gated starts or... Exactly, cross country. And each sport will have its own specific gating are mitigating, mitigating circumstances. Okay. So in cross country, we would start in waves. Okay. You might start with your number ones first, 30 seconds, 40 seconds later, and number two, three, four, and so on. You may run your varsity first, clear out 30 minutes afterwards to run the next event. Those haven't been totally decided yet, but that would be some of the ways we would run those competitions. Volleyball, again, we haven't talked about spectator, aspect of the of the event but they would very much carry on just like they've always had okay all right thank you yep there any other? are there any other sporty questions okay guys i think you should just yeah, stay here stay for up. a minute we'll do it we'll do it, do it by category <laughs> so that people can just stay up there yeah, and answer questions all right go ahead miss embry thank you or, sorry i was looking at jamie and saying miss embry so You're that was very confusing <laughs> go ahead miss borgman <laughs> It's, it's already confusing because you can't see anyone mouth, anyone's mouth. Yeah, so, yeah. it's fine. Um, so, hi. Thank you hi. for being here. We appreciate it. Um, so, 
when a kiddo, regardless of what sport they're in, if they are exposed to COVID, if there's a COVID case on the team, what does that look like? Does the whole team have to quarantine or is it just kids who have been in direct contact with that specific case or how does that look when there is a case on a team? That's a great question. I think I'll have Shelby come up. Shelby, Shelby would be our go-to person yeah. on any health I would, issue. I would bet my right arm that Dick could answer this question. But um, So if there's a case on the team, we're going to look at a few things. Um, we're going to look at were they six feet socially distanced and were they all masked up. If that is the case, then there is no quarantine necessary. So we'll notify everyone that, hey, there was a case, but because you guys did such a great job with the mitigating measures, no one has to quarantine. But we know with athletics, that won't always be the case. And so that's why the, um, the case investigation and contact tracing will occur with the school nurse. Okay. So um, for example, let's just take soccer, which is a, a medium risk sport, right? So let's say that a soccer team, you know, um, a forward has COVID and then that forward is practicing with all of the other, you know, forwards. And so, um, I mean, could potentially like your entire, you know, your all your forwards have to quarantine then? Mm -hmm. if Potentially. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, if they're staying six feet away from each other, they're not coming up to defend each other, they're really staying six feet. And if they're all wearing masks because they're not exercising really hard, they're just doing, then no. But if they're, you know, engaged with each other than it is, and without masks, then it's likely all of them will have to quarantine. Okay. So will there be some education then on part of the coaches and um, to express to the kids how important it is when we're not scrimmaging, when we're not playing in a game to mm -hmm. kind of... Yes, in fact, that's going on right now. It's part of our guidelines and part of our communication with coaches through the ADs. Each coach and each sponsor is taking a National Federation High School COVID class that will certify them in the basic knowledge of COVID. So we're doing our best to get that out. Okay. Thank you. I might have another one or two, but go ahead. We can okay. circle back. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I have questions for Dr. Thomas about performing arts. Um, so do you foresee uh, plans for any public performances in the fall semester, and how what does that look like? Looks very different, as you can imagine. Uh, I'm actually exploring the possibility of uh, live streaming concerts uh, to make sure we have the proper copyrights in place to do that. Um, it could be that we would do some things outdoors, uh, wide open spaces. Uh, again, if the gating criteria is such that we can't have audiences, those would still be live streamed, but that would be much more open. Um, if it you know, is in no, late November, December, where we'd have our typical December type concerts, we may still do those in the auditorium, but we may actually have the students in the seating area and a camera up on stage, again, so they can be more widespread and, and we're the, in a space that the air is refreshing easier. So we are still talking about that, and even at the elementaries, how we can do that. Um, because without a performance, I mean, it's, it's like learning math without ever taking a test. Mm -hmm. And so the same is true in the performing arts. If you never perform it, what's the point? And it's really difficult to, to get up for that learning. Um, the same thing would, would be true with theatrical events. They're actually looking at, and there are some authors, creators right now, creating virtual theatrical shows 
where they actually take place via Zoom and they practice looking at each other and, and they still interact in that medium. So there's some new art forms that are coming about because of this. So absolutely, we're still going to perform. Okay, great. Thank you. Do you have a follow-up, Mary, since we've hit you again? No, we're just no I think they've been hit yet. Well, does Mr. Stratton have a question for the sports folks, Mr. Stratton? Sports and performing arts. I do not. Thank you. Thank you. Um, can you tell me how you incorporate the online kiddos who are enrolled in band or football in, in this process? Well, athletically, they will be eligible. So if they're in a moderate to low risk activity, they would then come to the school for that practice, for that practice time. Um, not much different than if you were face to face because Keisha has now made remote learners eligible. And again, because our performing arts groups also fall under CASIA guidelines, they can do the same things after school hours. Uh, during school, we're working out those pieces with the online learning, remote learning piece. Um, but it is our hope that the students can still, since they're going to be interacting with their own teachers at their own buildings, that we'll be able to interact with them via WebEx or uh, there might be some in-person things, but those, those are yet to be worked out. But we're still trying to get them to interact with their normal homeschool staff. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn. I have a question, I guess, about football. Um, so it's in high risk, and we're nowhere near that criteria to get into the green now. But at what point do you have to pull the plug on a football season? I mean, at, at what point would you have to do that? And is Shawnee Mission thinking at all? I know the state isn't, Keisha isn't, but are we thinking about switching seasons? to the spring where potentially we might be able to do football even though we wouldn't participate with Keisha with the other, I don't know if other teams are making accommodations to, to do football anyway, even though this is a recommendation, I don't know. So I'm just wondering what our thought process is on that. I'm assuming that the others were kind of gonna make some, well wrestling doesn't start for a while so we got some time there. Sounds like you were gonna make some accommodations for cheer to be able to do it and I don't know about dance. I'm assuming maybe, I don't know if we can do dance or not, but wondering about football. Uh, football, there's strength in numbers. So uh, it's gonna, a lot of that will depend on how many schools follow our lead. And we'll know more about that tomorrow. It could be that, right, there could be 13 of the 14 Sunflower League schools that don't participate in football on August 17th, or depending on what color zone we're in. Uh, EKL is very much in the same boat the five Blue Valley schools. So there could be a momentum to look at changing how football is played this year. Uh, if it seems to that that color code is unattainable at a reasonable time frame, there may be a large number of 6A schools, 5A schools that aren't participating because they're following the gating criteria. And population-wise, you just have to know the eastern side of the state has got a large number. So there could easily be two-thirds of the 6A schools not playing football come August 17th. And because of that, there'll be some movement and action, at least approach to Keisha, to have them reconsider where they are now. There's a lot that goes into that, because Keisha has seasons defined in the rule book, so things would have to be changed and worked through the executive board of directors and the board of directors, and superintendents and Board of Education members would be involved in that decision, but we'll know more here in the next few days how many schools 
very much like you're seeing at the college level. Like today, Big Ten, Pac-12 decided football is being moved. I'm sure the Big 12 will follow. MAC already canceled all their fall activities. So we're pretty much all kind of falls in place. So after uh, several board meetings tonight, we'll have a better picture of how many schools really will not be participating because they're following the guidelines like we are. Thank you. And, and I want to underscore that too. I mean, it's it's difficult when you're in high school and you you have something that you love, whether it's the arts or athletics or debate. It doesn't matter what it is. That's your passion. We want kids to be able to pursue their passion. What we've seen in other states are creative solutions. There's a number of states that have moved uh, the fall seasons to the spring. They're creating modified structures. That makes sense. Uh, many of the Midwestern states have not done that. And that's their call to make. But we just know we're going to be advocating for, for students. And if we're not able to do some of these activities this fall, then we're going to do everything we can to advocate for alternatives that allow them to pursue their interests. But I can't guarantee what that outcome is. Just know we'll be advocating. Yeah, I'm just interested to understand, and I don't have high school age kids, but what conditioning looks like for, for these sports. It strikes me that some of these high-risk sports, it's probably as risky to be conditioning for them as it might be to be competing in them. So talk to me a little bit about how a conditioning maybe at a football practice could be where a group of linemen are working on a lineman technique. Um, could be running backs are working on uh, drop step, working on uh, different patterns, pass patterns, receivers and backs. Quarterbacks could be working on and, and throwing skills. Um, as we go into this next phase of conditioning and using additional implements, we would probably look at uh, letting the football players have their helmets, to add helmets. We might be looking at some uh, seven-on-seven scrimmaging where you're not allowing contact, but you're, you're going through those uh, skill sets. So it, it gets, we try to keep the social distancing whenever it can, is possible and face masking at all times. Thank and you. cleaning implements that we use. So it's still kind of no contact. Right, even, and soccer. So that's a very contact-heavy sport. Right. Thank you. Do you have a follow-up, or am I good to... Okay, I'm going to bounce back over to Jamie, because I know she does. So when a kiddo has COVID on a sports team, um, what is the communication going to look like when that occurs? So we are drafting letters right now that will come from the coaches to their distribution group to let that group know that we've been notified of a positive case and we are in contact or have been in contact with those who were um, in close contact with that positive case. Everyone else, we're just notifying you. And then will there be a recommendation to quarantine or will there be a mandate to quarantine? No, it is mandated. There okay. is no option. Once you're exposed, you cannot return to school. You do need to stay home that 14 days and watch for symptoms to develop. Okay. And all that will be clearly communicated through the school nurses with a personal contact. And I... Oh, sorry. I have a super related question when you're, when you're done that's related sure. to contact tracing. I believe we asked this question at the two week ago meeting, a special meeting. Um, will kids be required to get tested if they have symptoms or what does that look like? And are they also required to report? So no, we are not requiring people to get tested. 
but we will, if you choose not to get tested or if you don't have an option for testing, then we will quarantine for the full 14 days. Now, if you remember from last time, um, I think it was Sarah who asked the question that, what if you go get tested, then can you um, come back before the 14 days? And that is no. So the exposed cases for quarantine, it's the hard 14 days. And then they're still, if they test positive, are they required to report to the school? So I'm not, I don't have a mechanism to require reporting, but I mean, I can't imagine a situation where someone would choose not to do the socially responsible thing. This virus can be deadly, and I think our patrons, our parents, our staff are going to take it seriously. And that student's name will be kept confidential. That's, I think that's a big thing we should be concerned about is um, when a kiddo has COVID, um, just that patient privacy is so important. Um, Absolutely, Jamie. So FERPA laws do not allow us to disclose a person's name. So when parents are notified or staff are notified that they were exposed to a positive case, that's all they will be told. They will not be told what setting that exposure occurred in. Um, they will not be told who. It's just simply that you were exposed to a positive case and this is what we're needing you to do. Thank you. That actually, Jamie, got to my point. I just think it's important for people in the community to know, I think with contact tracing, that you want to know all the details. You want to know where it happened. You want to know who it was. You want to know so you can ask your kid how long they were around that person or whether they took their mask off. There's a lot of information people will want to know in the incidence of an exposure, but those families still have privacy concerns that means that Shelby or whoever the nurse is at school doesn't call and give you every little piece of information that you want to know about the exposure. Yeah, and I think you guys all know our school nurses do this year-round and always have. I mean, with chicken pox, with head lice, with mumps, measles, pertussis, all of these um, contagious illnesses, that's what we do. And we don't ever reveal the person's identity. Do we have any additional sports or band-centered questions? You do, Jamie. Go ahead. So when will we know when, you know, regarding football, regarding soccer, regarding fine arts, regarding when will we know whether we have the all-clear to play? Well, that's going to all be dependent on the gating criteria. So we'll be following that closely that Shelby talked about. And so once it goes to those zones, that's when that can happen. And for us, high risk needs to be green zone. And so, from what I understand, though, the week of August 17th, next week, the Johnson County Health Department will be kind of forecasting what... Yeah, that's accurate. They're going to, uh, the next week, the week of August 17th, at some point during that week, they will let us know what zone uh, they are projecting that we will be in for the start of school. Which and then we can begin to make plans accordingly which will also apply to sports. It would apply to sports, so, right. And we, and we have regular meetings with the county, week, weekly at least, and we, we will work very closely with them to monitor what zone we're in and what is and is not permissible. So next week we'll know, parents will know, kids will know what the first week of school will look like with regards to sports. That's, that is, that is uh, my understanding of working with the county. I believe that's what they have on their website as well. Okay. Thank you. And I, and, I might, and I might say this, the county has been great to work with. 
they're always available to us, so I appreciate everything that they're doing. I don't see any additional questions, gentlemen. Thank you very much. It's appreciated. Um, if we're going by topics, <laughs> um, I wouldn't mind if we could speak to the building and maintenance folks, Mr. Robinson. If we could, I'd like to talk about the ventilation because um, we had some questions about that from folks. Um, we discussed the dampering at the last meeting, and if I recall correctly, the dampering was to allow additional outside air to come into the buildings. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And can you um, can you go over again what the filters were that we just purchased? This evening, and and because I know people were concerned about the the filtering. Okay, I'll let Mr. Club answer that question for Thank you. Thank you. You mean the, the the proposed filters that we want to purchase and install currently are Merv 11s. Mm -hmm. They're they're what? I'm sorry. They we currently have Merv 8s. Merv We 8s. want to purchase Merv 11s. And we're moving up to Merv 11s. Correct. Can you can you give me someone who doesn't know anything about Merv a description <laughs> about what we're doing by moving from eight to eleven? It, it is a much better filter. Um, it can collect a lot smaller particles throughout the year. Great, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes, and sir. that's going in all of our buildings. Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, every every unit that has a filter with this purchase will have the upgrade to a MERV 11. Okay. There are the high traffic or the, or, or certain areas where we would want even better filtration if possible. And we're still looking into that avenue if the equipment we have can maintain it with the MERV 13 filters. Gotcha. And that's the band in choir rooms we were just talking about probably, if I had to guess. Yeah. Um, nurse's office, isolation rooms, yes. Yes. And the caveat to that is we're not sure we'll be able to get the 13s in a timely fashion. Because the MERV 11s were promised us from one vendor and never did show up, so we had to go to a second vendor. So everybody's trying to order the same material, so it's getting real hard to get some of these products. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would like the 13s, please. <laughs> we would too. All right. Uh, does anybody else have questions for, for these gentlemen? Reverend Guy? So um, we're also looking at HEPA filters. That's a different thing than these MERV filters, correct? That is correct. So the, the HEPA is, is a secondary air scrubber. Um, so it'll, it'll have a pre-filter on it also um, to help keep the, the HEPA section clean. But it, it'll, it'll sit there, two different versions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and like the, the, the band area that will have just an air scrubber circulating that air and cleaning it through the HEPA filtration. The nurse's office and the isolation rooms will have the same thing, but we will be exhausting that air out of those rooms and it'll help, hopefully help, it should help, it will help make it in a negative air pressure zone in, in those two rooms. And the negative air is much like a hospital in an in a, uh, operation room and things like that to keep viruses down. I just had a question about the increasing the runtime of the HVAC system. So I'm thinking long term, and not that I'm against this now and this, but what will that do to the long term 
like life of these HVAC systems? Well, the more you run, the, the shorter their lifespans, but we had been over the last year uh, with our uh, energy management cutting back on some of that one during off times. So we're turning around and going back kind of differently now and running them more often. So it will, it will affect their life, but if we're only doing it for a few months or six months, I don't, I don't know if that'll make that big of a difference. But it will and it'll also increase the energy costs then too. That's right? correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, having half the number of students and staff potentially, uh, or students, I guess, in the building um, as a function of the um, hybrid mode, if we're in that mode, uh, as well as those times we might be in the remote only. Does that then also provide a higher degree of efficiency for those systems because they have fewer people in the building um, circulating and filtering the air? Does that have any impact, the number of people in the facility? It, it will, but do we look at, you know, is there only one person in the room versus yeah. A, a normal school day with 30, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's, it would be easier, but, um, you know, outside air dictates a lot of that also. Mm -hmm. But Thank you. Do you have a question, Ms. Embry? Yeah, I'm, I just want to um, ask, I know in having the bond conversation earlier tonight makes this fresh in my mind. I know there's some newer facilities in our building. Are those going to be easier or faster or cheaper to get up to the standards we need them to be at to be safe in this pandemic? Uh, not really. You know, the negative air in a, in a school setting has probably never been heard of prior to COVID or, or never been, you know, anything that you would consider. Uh, one thing we probably would want to do is reevaluate if we move forward with the next bond issue and look at those particular rooms and maybe we design those uh, systems a little differently than what we have in the past. Uh, so that is part of what would come out of this. That's helpful. I think the only thing I, I would just share is that um, I do think there's probably going to be some extra costs for doing all of this the right way, but I think it's worth doing it the right way in terms of, you know, I. I I think every good idea out there about how we can mitigate risks, there's some downside to it, but um, outdoor air is so much healthier in this context, and as much as we can mimic that outdoor air in our in our buildings, the better off our kids are. So thank you. You just got to remember if it gets down to zero degrees outside, you can't bring in quite as much air or the humidity is really high. So that'll be a constant setting that we're dealing with to, to keep the balance out of that. So it'll just be a, a constant adjustment. Uh, based on the modeling, is it, I mean, we may not be in person when it's zero degrees outside. So there's that. Right. We don't really know. Um, are there any, Mr. Stratton, do you have a question for our building and maintenance folks? Did, did I already ask you? No, this? I don't. Okay. Thank you. Everyone's doing good. Thanks. Okay. Great, thank you. Does anybody else have any questions? No. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's appreciated. Um, I wouldn't mind talking to Dr. Schumacher if that's okay with everybody else. Um, and I'll I'll take the privilege of starting again because I want to. Um, we were talking about maybe half the kids not being in the building with the hybrid model, but looking at the numbers you presented tonight, it looks like we won't have more than 30% of the kids in the building at a time. Yeah, yeah, the number's at nearly 8,000 for the district. Large, 
Great so, numbers. so in the hybrid model, when children are attending, only 30% of our students will be there. So that really will allow for the social distancing mapping out in the classrooms. What would the average class size then be in the high school buildings with that, since they well, likely have the larger class sizes? Yeah, that's difficult in that you remember we're pulling that same number of kids out of that in-person but we have to staff with our existing staff in that remote mm -hmm. that remote model so where we used to have for example 80 FTE at a particular high school maybe now we've got 65 or 60 and so even though we have less kids we have less staff um, so that's the need to continue utilizing those gating criteria and utilizing the hybrid model when we need to. So I might, I might jump in on yeah, that one too. It depends a little bit on the classroom size. Um, you know, there, I'm, I'm looking at Joe back here. There's, there's some classrooms that are smaller than others, right? So um, that will factor in in terms of how many students we can fit in a classroom. If you have to do six feet of social distancing and you have a small classroom, that's gonna be a different number than if you have a larger classroom. So, but I think typically we've talked about um, somewhere in the neighborhood of, a, of an average classroom size, what, 10, Sounds right. 12, it's some max, somewhere in that neighborhood. So that, again, classroom, classroom square footage is gonna dictate some of it. And, and if I can add, we do think that with this new model where we're running the class or school within a school, that we can get a little creative with staffing where a teacher may be doing a hybrid of, of themselves. So a little bit in person and a little bit remote. And so by doing that, we're not pushing one solely to remote when we maybe don't need that full FTE at remote, but we can kind of blend their environment. So I think we can get a little more bang for our buck, so to speak, out of each FTE that way. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'll start on this end with Ms. Embry and we can work our way around again. Oh, I'm, I'm curious to understand when we look at this sort of, it's not just a matter of what everyone's preferences are, but how they match up. Mm -hmm. And um, it looks to me like we actually need more on remote teachers for elementary than we thought we did. Like if you could point out for us just where some of the kind of biggest mismatches are, that'd be great. Yeah, you've pointed out one. Um, another one would be at the secondary level as well. Um, you know, that the student numbers don't match what the staffing preferences indicated. But I do think there's more. I, I know there's more staff who would actually like to be in remote. I think they were just fearful um, that they were going to lose that spot in their original school. And so they marked other or something like that. Um, we're going to have good conversations. And so we had um, our secondary staffing meeting this afternoon. And one of the pieces that we laid out is those principals are going to have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with those staff, um, indicating this is the amount of remote learning we need for Algebra 1, or whatever the case may be, and having conversations based on those preference forms, and, and, who was going to, and who's going to be good at it, frankly? You know, who's going to be an adept uh, remote teacher? Um, and then making those staffing decisions. Now, of course, we want full agreement, uh, and that's what we'll try to get, um, but ultimately we need staff to be in that remote program and so we'll make those choices and so uh, just to confirm for what i hear you saying is okay. that um if someone's going to have to deliver instruction in a way that they didn't indicate as a preference it's going to be on the edge of remote we're not going to have to have teachers who indicated that they wanted to be remote and say sorry we need you in the classroom like if it's going to go one way or the other yeah i, I don't know if i could say that 100 percent um but probably i mean in there's going to be more of that where a person indicated that they wanted to be in person but they have to be remote okay thank Is you that, okay yep, yep. 
Yeah, I think the I think the key this year for all of us is uh, flexibility. Right. It's nothing's going to be perfect, but they're doing a good job of trying to get the best matches they can. None for me right now. Okay, thank you, um, Doctor. Oh wait, I'm sorry, Mr. Stratton. Do you have any questions for Doctor Schumacher? No, I don't. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor Sinclair. Um, I think I was um, awed by the uh, secondary principals taking on creating two master schedules. That's mm -hmm. pretty um, high right. bar task. And I, I missed the um, clarification. Is that the high schools only or is that middle school as well? It's middle as well. Middle as well. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, they jumped in. They, they wanted it. That's they saw amazing. the need for it. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to take a, a huge effort, huge lift, but they're up for it. That's, that speaks a lot to the um, dedication to maintaining and uh, relationships for our students and our staff. It's a, been a priority of the district through CASA and through the strategic plan and going that extra step. That's creating one master schedule as a task, creating two is it's a pretty high bar. Yeah, I agree. Appreciate that. For sure. Jeffrey Day? So the school in the school model, I, I know when we were talking about this two weeks ago, we were um, talking about, well, we had even assigned a principal to the remote learning school, but now it kind of sounds like the students are still going to be under the principal of the high school where they're still assigned. Has that changed or is that? No, Dr. Brogdon will still be the principal of those um, 2,100 high school students, for example, uh, but we put the trust in the local building principal to build that master schedule. Now, Laura, Dr. Brogdon is going to work with them jointly on that, but she's still going to oversee those learners, that parent communication, um, evaluations of those staff, all, all of those pieces that a principal would. Okay, so the parent of an online learning senior high student would contact Dr. Brogdon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but we've also had discussions to kind of extend your, your question a little bit about, I mean, 2,100 students, I mean, one principal can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so there, there's going to be a need for support, counselor support, uh, perhaps um, associate principal support, school psych, social workers, all of that. And so, again, the thought is that this school within a school is going to allow us to keep those support staff members with those kids that they know and those communities that they know. So a lot of pluses okay. come out of it, yeah. I have one other question. Yeah. Um, do we know yet how many families... Um, are opting to take their children out of the Shawnee Mission School District for this school year, either to homeschool or to send to a private school. Do we have those numbers? We, we do not. Okay. Um, my, my best guess would be, my, my best guess is when we when we look at our September, you know, September 20th count, I think we would have a sense of where, where that stands. But um, we just have some anecdotal um, okay, but they didn't report that on Skyward. I'm guessing <laughs> those are probably the Correct. people we haven't heard Correct. from. Maybe we um, we we do all well when a student exits the district. There is an exit code related to that, so we can start looking at what those exit codes are. And if we see you know the like the, the homeschool flag come up more frequently, that we can take a look at that. And, and that wouldn't surprise me if there was a, a spike in the, in that homeschool exit. That will obviously right. impact our budgeting. Um, but yeah, okay. I might add too. It's when I look at the numbers of uh, no responses, uh, that number doesn't surprise me. I think there's a certain number of no responses you're going to get, and that's going to happen for lots of different reasons. But uh, I'd say that that 
that number is probably right in the range it would be for, for just about any other topic that you would be trying to address in a school district. Is that right, Dan? Right, correct. Yeah. And in fact, I'm very impressed. The response from the teachers was fantastic. The response from the parents has been wonderful. Uh, I, I was impressed at how many jumped in and, and made a, what I know was a difficult decision for them, for the, for the parents especially. I have a couple questions. Is that all right? Um, thank you so yeah, much for all your work. I absolutely. appreciate it. Um, so I understand it sounds like from your presentation earlier, if a child or a parent hasn't selected an option in Skyward, it sounds like the default is remote. Is that correct? That is correct. No, no, no. In person, oh, I'm sorry. In yes, in person, yes. Okay. And then are we clarifying that with parents just to make sure that that's the actual option that they want, or are we just sticking with that in person don't know the answer to that question. Okay. I think it, it's going to be important for us to follow up at the school level okay. with those parents so that they're aware. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's that communication is important to do. Yeah, so we are following up. We'll follow up and make sure that they're communicated with. Now, whether they respond to our communication sure. or not is another matter. Yeah. And, and have principal, principals in, in school secretaries have been doing that, they correct? Have. Like yes. they have been following Diligently. up. So this is the handful of folks who they still have not connected with. Is that That's correct? Right. That's correct. That's right. And remember too, we're at that point in the year where it's not uncommon to try to contact a family to see if they're returning to the school and not have a response. That's why that we won't know. Uh, Laura, back to your question on how many students we may or may not have lost until that September count date. There's nothing out of the ordinary uh, with that uh, happening in that way. We never know until the September count date how many kids have dropped. Of course, we get the, the ads, but we, we frequently won't know until after Labor Day how many students are actually not going to be attending. And then um, regarding SPED students, mm -hmm. um, will some kiddos that that receive, that need services kind of in person, will they, like speech, OTPT, for example, will those, will SPED children be able to come in and receive those services in person, or what does that look like for kids with? So that's a better question for my colleague, Sherry. Sure, Dumb sorry line. to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. Um, I'll try to answer it this way. Sure. We, we, we have an obligation to meet that legal document, whatever it says. Um, within the bounds of, you know, uh, a shutdown within the county, things like that. Uh, so Sherry, I know, is working on plans and working with, with Rachel England on what that's going to look like for our staff. But we do have an obligation to service that IEP. Okay, so we're working yeah. on it. I'll, I'll echo that response as well. You know, we have an, an FAQ that's helpful for uh, parents with special education students. And that's something where we can bring uh, Sherry back at some point and have her give an update to the board. Okay, that'd be great. And then are there any updates with what we're doing or have done um, for kids that have connectivity issues? Um, have there been any solutions identified or is that still kind of in progress as well? Uh, no, we have been working on that. And uh, I know, I don't know, Mr. Lane's here. I, I don't know if there's, there's anything to report as an update tonight. Sure. If you do have something you want to add, then please go ahead and do that. Some of this, some of these questions 
that that we were addressing a couple of weeks ago are going to be works in progress. Absolutely. Until sure. we get a little bit closer to the start of, of uh, bringing students in. So, Dr. Ziegler and I did visit today for a few minutes. Uh, we're trying to put a, a broader meeting together, um, looking at kind of the kind of a one-two punch. You know, the the first effect would be to get hotspots. First effect would be to figure out who needs hotspots. Sure. And so we started querying around other school districts to see, you know, how, how have they done that? How have they gathered that data? And then um, figure out, you know, the number of devices we would need there. There are things you have to take into account there, like if you have several learners in the same house, a single hotspot, not going to be a solution for that household. You may have to have more than one hotspot for any given family if they have multiple users in the same house. Some of the things we have to figure out there. And then the longer term fix for that would be even post, you know, post pandemic and those type of things are how do we get uh, how do we get vendors in our community engaged in a way that we can provide broadband access to these families? Mm -hmm. That's uh, because that's really the solution. The hotspots, uh, they're they're kind of a bandage for for a for a big problem. It's a good bandage, something we need, you know, sooner rather than later. But long term, uh, broadband access for the families in the home is that's the the ultimate goal. You know, it's very interesting. I can't remember whether it's Finland or Norway, but one of the countries was highlighted as being uh, as having the ability to get remote learning off the ground very quickly. Well, one of the reasons they could do that was because of uh, broadband access throughout the country. I don't know if I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't you know if you remember which country that was, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Scandinavia somewhere. I guess that doesn't really isn't really. Fair. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. right. Scandinavian. But. We're in the right part of the country, but truly, I mean, the, just the idea of broadband as, yeah. as a universal principle, kind of like roads are. Yeah. Is a is a good idea, and those countries that have it are at a distinct advantage mm -hmm. of being able to deliver learning to, to all their students. I have a follow-up on that. Have we reached out to any of our municipal partners to talk about any of the local municipalities offering broadband? I know there are some municipalities throughout the country who are offering it, and I don't know if there's any discussions about that in the Johnson County area or not. I don't know if you want to answer that. I mean, there's 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 general discussions going on, but we have not gotten to the point where we're ready to engage municipalities in that kind of uh, deeper long-term conversation. Not that we don't want to. Okay. We just we're just not quite there yet. Thank That's you. Correct. I just have two more questions. I don't want to oh, sure. take. That, uh, does anyone else have any questions for Mr. Lane? No. Okay. Well, then I'll Thank see you. to you, Jamie. Um, so this I'm really struggling with this one. Um, when kids have to quarantine for whatever reason, um, so they're home for 14 days and they've chosen an in-person option. Do they then flip to the remote option, or how does how does how do kids learn then when they have to quarantine? Um, that's more of a question for my colleague, Dr. Hubbard. Okay, um, but sure. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. But to my, to my knowledge, um, we just don't have the capacity right now to move all of those learners in and out of those different modes. Uh, once we get it staffed, that's where they really need to stay. Uh, but, of course, accommodations will have to be made to ensure that those kids still uh, get their learning opportunities as they would in the in-person. So um, I'm certain that Dr. Hubbard and her team are working on that. Oh, yeah, no, I can. Go, go ahead, Dan. And one, and one of the thoughts is, you know, all of our learning pro programs are will flow through the Canvas learning management system, regardless of whether they're in-person, hybrid, um, fully in. So that's, so there is this, um, so 
uh, it does allow for some fluidity, some, some flexibility in those schedules. So the intent is for remote in-person to look very similar from a learning management standpoint to, to, to be able to accommodate students who might need to, to quarantine, for example. I mean, yeah. that just makes me really nervous. I mean, just, I mean, I have all my kids are in sports. They're in middle school and high school now, and we've already had to quarantine. And I mean, I just know because they're going to be, and I know I'm not alone in this because my kids and so many other kids are going to be so, you know, um, in so many different groups. I mean, the likelihood of them having to quarantine is very high. And then, I mean, two weeks out with really no Mm -hmm. direct teaching, um, that's a long time. You know, we're going to do the very best we can to make accommodations, but I don't want to sit here and promise you about exactly what that's going to look like. Sure. If you think about it, what what would have happened in, in the past? Well, we know that students may have had work sent home to them, but there wouldn't have been any kind of direct instruction, even though they are home. Let's say they were home with an illness or mm-hmm. uh, an injury or something that prevented them from going to school. So uh, we're creating something that we've never done before. Yeah. I, and so it w- there's a lot of unknowns here, uh, a lot of problems that we're going to have to solve as we encounter them. Yeah. And I'm so sensitive to that, and I understand, and, and I really appreciate all the thoughtfulness that everybody is doing. Um, I just know that, you know, there's going to be a lot of kids in this boat that are going to have to be quarantined, you know, for multiple weeks and then and then may go back to class for a day or two and then have to quarantine again, and, you know, that's more time. And so um, that may be something that, you know, as the weeks go on, we can have a further discussion about what that looks like a little bit more. Um, But, again, I do appreciate you thinking through the 10,001 scenarios and all of this. Um, I I would add this, too. I think some of this is we have a lot of questions on the table that we won't be able to answer until we actually start school and begin to run with these models. We'll have a lot of things that will work well. We'll have some things that we didn't anticipate. And then, like I said, there'll be a number of, of problems for which we have to create solutions in ways that we can manage. Yep. And that's the other part of this is when we don't have unlimited human capital. And uh, But I know everyone's going to work hard to do the very best they can to meet the needs of all learners. But there's going to be limitations on what's going to be possible. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate the transparency and honesty in that. Thank you. I have, I have a follow-up. Um, on the staff um, questionnaire, did mm-hmm. that go to all of our staff members? All certified. All certified. So right. our parents did not receive the questionnaire? Uh, no. And so we're discussing what that's going to look like, but we figured, we determined that we need to get the certified staffing figured out before we start to work on the, the classified. But the parents will be receiving communication once the certified staffing situation is clarified absolutely okay just making sure mm-hmm. thank you Appreciate You're welcome. That. that's my last question are there any further for dr schumacher go for it I, I just had i feel like this is like myth busting but i have heard from various districts some of them are not allowing their remote teachers to come into the building and some of them are requiring people who are remote teachers to be in the building do we have any sort of a stance as a district about what remote teachers, where they will or won't be expected to be on a given school day? So it, it could be either. I mean, it could be they're, they're at home. It could be that they're in the building. Um, if they can um, 
um, perform their duties um, well at home, free of distractions with Wi-Fi connections and all of that. Absolutely, if that works for them, that works for them. There may be situations where there's a PLC meeting or a staff meeting or something like that or where they needed to use a, manip a manipulative or something in their classroom, and so they would be encouraged to come in and, and utilize that as well. So we're flexible. Um, and. Um, but will their classrooms be getting used for other purposes? It's a possibility, or? and so that's where we're going to need to get creative on what that actual physical location is. I can tell you that would be another plus out of this school within a school model is that I, you know, technically they would still have that home base. Now, could their classroom be being used? Of course, but we would have to get creative on where their workstation would be if they were to come in. Okay, so that's a, at staff discretion, it sounds like. And staff well, and administrator, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it has to be coordinated. And remember, too, at the high school level, it's, it's very likely that we're going to have people working in both modalities, right? There may be a remote class or maybe an in-person class. So uh, we certainly want to set it up so the staff can absolutely come on site and work from, uh, from their workplace. Um, but like Dr. Schumacher said, there will also be opportunities if it works for folks to work from home if, if necessary or if that's what's effective. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's kind of like what we do with our work every day. We work remote for a long time. Now we pretty much come in every day. And that's, I think, what we're going to probably learn through this process is what's the right place to get the work done. And that really kind of answers the question. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Um, I think the next on my list is Dr. Neal, if you can join us for a minute. Thank you. Sure. Um, I had a question um, regarding if there are multiple children in the same household, there's a discount for that. Yes. Is, what is the what is the price d differential for multiple children? I believe their discount is ten percent. Okay. For siblings. Okay. Um, do you, did you have a follow up? Oh, I, go ahead and finish. Oh, oh, that's okay. Um, I, I don't know that there's other childcare available in the area for folks on those one to two days basis. And sometimes it's hard to get childcare for just one or two days a week. So I think that that's great that we're going to have that option. I am concerned that for some of our staff that that price point is still going to be high for them or out of their reach. I'm thinking like with parents and such. Um, do we have any, are there any, are there any things that we can offer them if they're free and reduced lunch or something to that effect that makes it more affordable or is that just out of reach right now? Well, I will tell you that the, the, the fees that we negotiated, I mean, we really tried to really drive those down um, with, our, with our waiver of the facility use um, and to get that seven to six package in there um, to include that for those two days as well as the three. So I think that I think we've really tried to squeeze out in terms of cost. Now, if a staff member, um, if a family qualifies for free and reduced, of course their meals, because they're going to access meals through our school district, certainly they would have that nutrition component. Um, during those um, standard rates apply, if you are at a title um, building, we typically, as you, if you looked through the, just the general leases that we do throughout the year, there is um, a waiver of fees at those title schools to help again drive those costs down. But I would say if we had a, if we had staff members um, that perhaps they felt like that um, 
the rates that we've tried to get for them to be the very best that we can um, was still out of reach. You know, if they contact us, you know, certainly I don't know. Um, I, I don't know where the uh, Shawnee Mission Education Foundation would lie, uh, whether that would be something that we would be able to offer any kind of scholarshiping for, um, or if the uh, entities would be able to help them any further with that. Um, but those would be those would be my first go-tos probably. Thank you. I really appreciate the work you all put into getting this ready to present to us tonight because child care concerns has been one of the things that we've heard about pretty frequently. Um, I know almost all of us are working parents, even if our kids are not, still aren't in the house. We know that we understand the frustration with regards to that, and so it's nice that there is an option to choose from. Um, that being said, does anybody else have any questions for Dr. Neal? Um, Dr. Sinclair? Um, Dr. Neal, could you just remind me again, how many staff in the district have children that attend? I can have, yeah, I can tell you the number of children okay. um, off the top of my head. Uh, Pre-K-6, we have five, about 531 pre-K-6 children of employees that are enrolled in Shawnee Mission Schools. Mm -hmm. And so if this is approved this evening, um, if you give us the green light to go forward with that, then my uh, intent is to send an, um, an email communication to all of those staff members tomorrow with the information along with a quick um, survey link for them to um, indicate that they are interested in enrolling. And then from there, I will connect them with the uh, child care provider for their child's school. Uh, we have a small, kind of a smaller percentage of employees whose children attend at the same location with them, um, but then we also have many employees where their children are attending elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we'll link them up with whatever that school is for their child. Thank you. Go ahead, Jamie. So from what I understand, Shawnee Mission is the only district at this point to offer this kind of service for its employees. Is that, is that correct? That's my understanding. That's my understanding. Yeah, so awesome job. Thank you for the time you spent this weekend making this happen. I know that's going to be a huge relief, huge burden release, you know, relief from a lot of teachers, so thank you. Um, so there's a lot of people, a lot of teachers that have kids in another school district, for example. So from what I understand, we're not extending this service to kids that are not enrolled in Shawnee Mission. Is that accurate? That's correct. Our focus has been on the students enrolled within our schools. Um, you know, part of what we, um, the guidance from health professionals, et cetera, is around that cohorting. So um, we really kind of honed in and tried to focus on serving the children that uh, were enrolled in our schools for our employees. I know that there are, are employees with children elsewhere, um, but uh, that was really our main goal and focus um, for putting this initial plan together. Thank you. Reverend Guy? And I just want to clarify that um, the students who are school age who would be in this program during their hybrid days where they're not in the school and or remote learning, um, that they would be doing their learning during the school day. This is not just childcare with adults keeping eyes on them. They would actually be supported in doing their online learning during the school day and then outside activities um, before and after. So. Um, so, so there would be that opportunity for the students to continue their learning as well. That, 
You are absolutely correct, and that's why we've called it uh, learning support slash care. And uh, so we, uh, you know, I really appreciate uh, the providers. Um, they are very cognizant of the fact that one of the key roles that they will have in those sessions will be to make sure that they connect the students uh, for that direct instruction piece on those remote days um, and when they're in their care, um, helping support their learning. Um, they asked if they could please, you know, have access to, say, uh, communication that would be helpful to them that might go to families to help with that support, um, to support the lessons. And so we said, you know, absolutely, we'll try to connect you so that you can do the very best job helping to support continuing that learning. And then for those hours um, where they may be outside of that, um, they'll continue to do the kinds of activities that they always have um, created um, to get students, um, you know, to occupy that time in a meaningful, purposeful way. Mr. Stratton, do you have any questions? No questions. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I have one more. Do you have one more, Mary? Just to clarify, this is for this is a. Um, uh, an option being created for both certified and classified staff, correct? This is all staff. Any Shawnee Mission School District employee with a student enrolled. In, Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, as we approach next semester, I know this is kind of a, this is not something we've ever done before, so it's a bit of a trial run. Um, if we are in a situation next semester with healthcare providers who are essential workers, um, I know we talked about at some point last spring, what we might do to provide care on site for um, essential healthcare workers. Would we be able to utilize perhaps this model? Do we have the space or ability or, I mean, are we looking at that at all come January when I, rates I are would, high? I would hate to commit anything beyond what we're doing. I think we really have to try this model out, make sure we can sustain this commitment first, mm -hmm. and then we'll evaluate where we're at. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. there's just a limit capacity here of what we can pull off. Right. And, and what we should try to pull off, because this is a great benefit uh, to our employees. And it's something that, uh, I think that's what I want to really emphasize here is our goal in this is to try to make it so that our employees can really focus on their work. Just like the essential employees in hospitals need to be able to focus on their work too. So I think right now we're committed to trying this model, see if it works, and then, uh, and then we can begin to pose questions like that later on. But I wouldn't want to commit to that yet. Right. Thank you. Are there any further questions? Looks like we're good. Thank you so much, Dr. Neal. It's appreciated. Um, I'm going to feel terrible if I missed bringing someone up. Was there anyone else that needed to come up? I <laughs> believe. We, does anyone that else we... have any further questions for anybody? Maybe that's the way I should pose this, Dr. Sinclair. Well, um, could could I just ask for one opportunity and clarification? There might be some questions about the um, temperature checks and doing the home piece, and if you could um, just reiterate maybe what the research is telling us about temperature checks and why the home um, screening is kind of the direction that is more evidence. Yeah, so if you remember a couple weeks back when I was here, I mentioned that the CDC does not support mass temperature checks for schools. The American Academy of Pediatrics does not support temperature, mass temperature checks, and neither does the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. So 
Um, based on that, um, we did seek uh, the Kansas Department of, um, or the KSDE's guidance. A lot of school districts were seeking their guidance based on that information. And that's when they came back with the guidance that it's perfectly fine to um, ask the parents to do that at home. And to me, it makes a lot of sense because I wouldn't want buses being loaded with kids who had symptoms at home. So I really think at home is where staff and students need to be doing that self-assessment before they even get in buses or get in carpools or walk to school together, any of those things. Thank you. Ms. Timbrey, I mean, why does that is the <laughs> second time tonight? <laughs> I'll, I'll take it coffee. as a compliment. Oh, go for I'm it. Just saying. <laughs> Ms. Borgman. Um, David just reminded me of one other there. thing. For the county health department, if you look on their tableau, um, I believe it's down to 38% now of people who are positive for COVID actually run a fever. So it doesn't. there's that too. Thank you. Thank you for your education on that. Um, what happens? What are we going to do when kids don't wear a mask? Um, what does that look like when, you know, I know it's going to be so hard for these littles especially, but even just kids horsing around. I mean, what, what does that look like in our schools? Well, like what most things look like in our schools, when things like that happen, I think we're just going to have to work really closely with, the, with each of our students to help them understand the importance of wearing a mask and we'll help... Uh, help them not saying this in a disciplinary way but you know help them correct behavior you know why is that important what why is it important to wear your mask why is that important to you why is that important to your to your neighbor to your to your teacher so those are the sorts of things that we have to be prepared to do and i have a lot of confidence that the principals and teachers and all of our staff will be able to work with kids in ways will help them to uh you know, wear masks in ways that are appropriate. There, there, I'm sure there will be issue cases where that doesn't happen, and we'll just have to work with them on an individual uh, basis. I don't know, Shelby, if you want to add to that or not. But Yeah, I was just going to add that um, I did get a team of five nurses. Um, they started last week helping me. Um, and so they have created mask basics, um, some educational information that we will start pushing out here soon to parents to start building that mask tolerance with their kiddos and giving them, you know, uh, examples of a mask that fits well, snug to your face, you don't have to mess with it, it doesn't fall down, it doesn't hurt your ears, all those kinds of things. So we'll we'll get that out pretty soon. So it doesn't sound like there's any punitive type. Well, we don't go into this with the idea of punishing a child related to mask wearing. I mean, that's, that's never the goal. I think the goal is to educate, to inform, to practice. Um, Let's start with that, That's and then you kind of take it from there. It's just like any other kind of behavior that you have in school. Start positive, and then if there are issues that you have to address at an individual level, then you, then you work with that child to try to correct the behavior. Thank you. I thought you were going to call me Ms. Boardman. I should have. <laughs> I that would have been better. Um, <laughs> Shelby, I just want to confirm, we, we have purchased 200,000 disposable masks for anyone entering buildings that need them, and then 5,000 of the face shields so that every staff member classified and certified will get two face shields. 
Yes, that is correct. And I was looking to see if Tyler is still in here because we also were given for free um, personal protective equipment from the county health department. And I ordered the maximum that we could order and um, they didn't tell us how much we received, but Tyler went and picked it up the other day and I forgot to ask him how much we actually received. So not only do we have the 200,000 masks and the 5,000 face shields, but we have additionally whatever the county health department gave us. Great. And on the, I, this, I, this sounds like buyer's remorse, but on the face shield, is the data as good on face shields as it is for like cloth face masks? A face shield does not replace a mask. A face shield would suffice as eye protection with a mask, but um, it offers no protection in and of itself. Okay. I think that's important for people to know that it's not, it's not your, your substitute or your trade out for your mask. It's yeah. Your two key safety pillars are going to be your six feet of personal distance with your mask. Okay. Thank you any further thank you thank you have we exhausted our questions for this round you guys it sounds like we have I, right. I want to take a moment and just thank the team again for um, answering all the questions tonight you've done a great job and I know this all of this is of high interest to our community thank you everyone okay we're moving on to the consent agenda um, I'll seek approval, 7.1, of the consent items. Move to approve, Boardman. Thank you, Ms. Boardman. Do I have a second? Second, Guy. Thank you, Reverend Guy. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. And we will move on to item 8.1, adoption of the 2021 budget. Um, I'll seek a motion and a second, and then Dr. Fulton, if you have anything to add, we'll have you speak at that time. Do I have a motion? So move, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? I'll second, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Uh, Dr. Fulton, did you have anything to add? I feel like we've discussed this ad nauseum, but. We have. Uh, all this information is uh, something that you're, I think, generally familiar with, and um, just recommending approval of the total published budget and the amount of $482 million. $482,828,000. $428. And I brush snaps available should you have any questions. Do any board members have questions at this time or do you think we've gotten them all out in the budget presentations for the last couple of months? Ms. Embry? I have, I guess, a, a bit of a, a statement and a question. Um, being new on the board, like when I ran for the board, it was like four key functions. You know, everyone drills in your head what the four key functions of a board is and approving the budget is one of the really critical key functions. Um, and I think as a new board member, it's hard for me to get a good handle on kind of what's new and different in the budget compared to previous years. So I guess, I guess that's my statement. But my question is, it feels like ultimately is what we're really doing just approving this $482 million amount. I guess as a new board member, the budget process to me feels still kind of enigmatic is what I'm saying. Um, and seeing from the presentation tonight how important it is to have community engagement and how important that is to our community, I think my statement is just that it, it still, as a board member, even feels a little bit, I mean, I understand the budget and I understand the various parts, oh, sorry, that come into it, but I don't have a good sense for, you know, what we've changed or shifted year over year as a board. Um, when it comes to this budget. Sure, and that's something that uh, in the year ahead, maybe that's something that we can work on as we head into our next budget cycle to see if there are ways we can make it even more clear. And uh, yes, it is absolutely the total amount, but it's, the budget's also broken down, for, as you know, with a little bit of detail so you can see where within that 
82 million where that money uh, is being spent. That, that's helpful because I just think it'd be useful to know even just things like we're investing more in student safety over X or we're investing more, I mean clearly right now we're investing a lot in PPE and COVID response and broadband and hotspots and like drawing out what some of those big themes are of where we're having to amp up our investment and where we're having to decrease it because of the context um, would just be really helpful for me as a new board member. And you know, I, I might add this too, you know, this is, this is a good example of you, you create the budget at the beginning of the year, but as we heard tonight, we may experience increased electric cost, electric cost because of uh, the changes that we're making to the point in which we're filtering the air. So we could expect, uh, well, last year was quite low anyway, but this year I think we definitely expect an increase in that area. And that's where the budget is a roadmap and, but you work within the total amount to make sure that at the end of the day you balance this budget out. Dr. Sinclair? Well, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping ahead to board comment, but it seems like being, again, relatively newer to the board too, just a couple of years in, that the um, longer term, uh, the budget becomes kind of a long-term shift um, in... Um, I don't know, incremental is the right word, but so much of the budget is allocated to staff. So we have, you know, 80% of that allocated of our operational budget to staff. And then you have fixed costs like utilities and supplies and things like that. So to me, the biggest shift is the commitment to our secondary teachers and that workload of going from six out of seven to five out of seven. That's a significant shift that takes long-term planning and long-term implementation. So. I feel like the changes from year to year are not going to be these big dramatic changes because so much of that budget is um, committed to staff and to those other kinds of fixed costs. Well, it's going to be interesting. Like yeah, you take, so I'm sorry, I'm getting, sure. probably getting you, off agenda. You, I apologize. You, you, you take the budget from this past year, compare it to the budget for the upcoming year, mm -hmm. and then you look at the 21-22 budget, and you're dealing with three different realities. Yeah. So electrical costs alone is going to look very different between last year and this year. Mm -hmm. What's it going to look like for 21-22? And those are the sorts of things where you can kind of do a compare and contrast of how, how has this budget shifted over time and why is that? Is that a one-time shift? Is that a long-term trend? Um, as Bob said, we did a lot of work to save money on electrical costs and we were highly successful but some of the very behaviors that got us to a lower cost, we have to uh, we have to change our behavior back mm -hmm. to be a little less efficient, and for good reason, to make sure that our air is being filtered appropriately. So, yeah, but those are things we can definitely talk yeah, about sorry. going forward. That'd be great. I Any think kind of clarity we can provide, we we certainly want to do that. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. Anybody else have any questions? No. Okay. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Uh, moving on to 8.2, the approval of the HEPA Force 1100 negative air machines, HEPA 500 air scrubber. <laughs> that Move sounds really cool. <laughs> um, Move to approve, Borkman. Thank you, Ms. Borkman. Is there a second? Second, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, I think we already heard a little bit about this, but Dr. Fulton, do you have anything you want to add? These are not the MERVs, these are the HEPAs. 
No, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> Dr. Okay. Fulton, do you mind if I add something, please? Please do. Okay, uh, just kind of give you an update on the CARES funding at this point. I think this is a great time to add this in. Currently, as you, as you know, we received about $2.6 in CARES funding. As of today, we had spent about 432000 If you approve this, these improvements in ventilation throughout the district, you're going to be up to about $1.2 of the $2.6 So that just gives you a point of reference, and that will be changing as we make other purchases down the way. As a matter of fact, in your consent agenda, you made about a $58,000 purchase. That are so um, for the filters going mm -hmm. for filters. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are at this point in the CARES funding. I, I actually really appreciate that. Thank you, Dr. Atha. Do we have an idea of how the rest of the money is earmarked? Do we know some things that are on the horizon that we're going to have to be spending for the CARES Act money? Well, not really uh, at this point. But, you know, you hear frequently that our reopening plan is fluid and changing. So we're looking at needs, the needs that we uh, have, and to allocate this money to where it's best going to address the issues that are facing us. So, but, yeah, we have some other ideas of how, we, how we're going to spend it. Um, so, but... Uh, I think we, we want to keep our priorities straight, spend it where it's needed. I think the other thing to remember, too, is this is the only money that schools have been allocated thus far. And we have to expend the money by September of 2021. So it's not just for this school year, but it's also, at this point, for the following school year. And yet, we don't know yet what we're into for the 21-22 school year. So. We are, we are uh, really being careful to make sure and use this money judiciously as we balance out those additional funds with what we've already have in our, in our operating budget and our capital outlay funds. So that, this is a, we know this, that 2.6 million sounds like a lot is already going, sorry, spinning down pretty quick. But I think it's a very important point to make that it is carryover funds that can mm -hmm. be carried over up to September next year. Are there any further questions? I just wanted to ask yeah. when we thought we'd actually get these HEPA Force 1100s. I know a lot of supply chain issues are coming up specifically for schools. Do we think they'll be here in our district by Labor Day-ish? Uh, we're hoping to still get these in by the time school starts, but that's that's a little bit of a stretch, but that's what we're working for. We're probably going to be, the filters are probably going to be slower than the, the equipment is. So we've been working with our suppliers, so we think we can get it in either by the time school starts or shortly thereafter. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, seeing no further questions, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Moving to item 8.3, approval of the school psychologist's salary schedule. I'll seek a motion to approve. So moved, Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. Is there a second? Goodburn, so, second. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Dr. Fulton, do you have a couple words to say about this one? Um, I'm gonna have uh, Dr. Schumacher come up and uh, just give you a quick update on this one. 
So Ms. Dumline and I are the negotiators with the school psychologist. We met with them last Friday. Um, yeah, just uh, Friday. And um, we had a wonderful conversation. They're a great group to work with. Um, we didn't wrap up their complete agreement. Uh, they want to make some changes that we are agreeable to to their evaluation instrument. We just need to massage that, but we wanted to get the economics done so that we could start processing uh, contracts and payroll. So that's this item here. Any board members have any questions? Hearing and seeing none, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? That passes unanimously. Thank you. Um, item 8.4, approval of learning support care options program. This is the program Dr. Neal was speaking about. Um, we'll seek a motion in a second, and if there are any final questions, we'll get them done. So moved. Thank you, Ms. Clipburn. Is there a second? Second, Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. Um, did anybody have any further questions that we didn't get out earlier? All right, seeing none, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. All right, we've made it to 9.1 comments from board members. I'm going to look at Ms. Hembry and say Ms. Hembry's name. <laughs> I'll start on your end of the table and work our way around. Thank you. I just want to say a brief thanks to all my fellow board members. This is clearly my first year on the board, and it's been a pressure cooker on the best of days. So um, having to go through all of these school reopening conversations is really hard, but I take so much comfort in knowing I'm doing it alongside so many other people who are taking the role and responsibility really seriously. I know that we have no one on this board who is wanting to throw away the science or try crazy experiments with our staff and our teachers and that gives me so much more confidence as a new board member to navigate this with all of you. So I'm very, very grateful. Um, and I have two kids of my own that I'm sending into our schools this fall and uh, knowing that not only um, our administrative team, but all of you up here are the ones asking all of these hard questions time and time again is um, such a great comfort to me as a new board member and as a mom. So thank you both. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Ms. Goodburn? Um, I was just going to say, Ms. Hembry, I'm here to support you. You can't ask a dumb question, really. I mean, <laughs> as a new board member, you really can't. Ask away. Ask any question. <laughs> um, I'll just stick myself in the middle. Um, I attended a training today and the speaker was talking about how it was for a bunch of attorneys, so I guess that sets the context, but um, he was speaking with regards to how to continue to have resilience as we move forward um, and how we, how we take care of ourselves, especially folks in leadership positions, because if we don't take care of ourselves, we won't be able to take care of our duties to our community. And um, he spoke about, um, people like to call them habits, but he, he calls it rituals. And he said, create rituals that serve your rhythm so that you can serve others. And I thought that was really powerful as we go through everything to remember to, with intention, take care of ourselves. So I know we are all, our community needs us. Um, to be very responsive. I know we're getting significant amounts of communication to our community. We are absolutely doing our best to respond to all of that. Um, but I also need board members to take care of themselves too. So if you are having a tricky bit with your emails, and this goes to staff, um, you know, remember to breathe. Maybe set aside only an hour a day 
either an hour a day to check emails or an hour a day where you don't check emails. I don't know. <laughs> However, you need to make the balance. But um, I know this is really stressful. I know it's stressful for our families who made the decision this last week as to where they wanted their kiddos to end up, either because of medical needs or mental health needs. And I know for our educators it was very stressful, uh, the idea of either not being able to see their kids in person or potentially not be in a building where they, you know, have roots. Um, but again, I, everyone who's reached out, even if they're reaching out with anxiety or concerns, they're doing it because they care about kids and they care about their community and they really want us to weather this okay. And so I am so grateful that we are weathering this together in the Shawnee Mission School District because I really have faith in the educators in both the online model and the in-person model. I have faith in the administrators sitting out there tonight who really, you know, worked tirelessly to come up with a safe way for us to see kids, even if it's just for a window, to get our eyes on them, to make sure that they're safe. Um, and for my kiddo that's going back, I have two who are staying home, but for my kiddo who's going back, I think she's going to strangle me if she doesn't talk to somebody besides the members of our household. So that'll be good for everyone involved. So I echo Miss um, Embry's comments. I'm grateful. Not for the pandemic, but that if I've got to go through it, I'm going through it with this particular community because I've seen what some other communities are doing, and that is very disconcerting. So I'll end on that note. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Okay. Um, thank you. On the um, in this time when we might feel like we don't have as much control over things in our lives as we wish we would, there's one thing that we all can take control over, and that is voting and being an informed voter. And so there's a window of time between now and November to really um, uh, seek out um, information about the candidates in your districts. I looked at, you know, just looking back in the community survey of the three factors that um, the, the district might be asked to, you know, put on that continuous improvement track. One of them is class sizes. And so we as a district can think about how we allocate our resources to maximize the learning needs for our students. Um, but there's a big piece of that on the flip side of that coin, and that's who we elect and send to Topeka and as well as to um, Washington, D.C. to a certain extent uh, with the federal dollars thinking about how those those um, candidates and elected officials will prioritize public education. So there's lots of information out there on people's voting records and where they stand for public education. So if that's something that's important to you, I would consider ask that you consider that um, as part of your decision in being an informed and active voter. Thank you. I was able to volunteer last week um, at two different pick-up-and-go meal distribution locations. I was at Rose Hill on Monday and Hawker Grove on Wednesday. I know Mrs. Elsley was at Hawker Grove, I guess, on Monday. Um, maybe some other board members had a chance to do that as well. Um, and that is another way to see this district at our best. And I just want to thank all the volunteers and all the people. I know Nancy had lots of people putting together those meals all summer long for those families. And um, just to to know how grateful they are to have this place where they can come and get these meals for their kids. and um, But it's more than that. The, the symphony was there, as Dr. Fulton shared in his superintendent report. The symphony members are there playing. The library donated books. A lot of the volunteers are teachers or school nurses that are waving at the kids or talking to the kids through the car windows and you know saying, I can't wait to, for school to start. And 
Um, it's, it's just our community at our very best. And so that was so uplifting. And I'm excited I get to do that again on Wednesday at Hawker Grove. And then after that, I personally am going back into quarantine um, because my first grandchild is due any day now. And so I want to make sure that I am healthy so that I can meet her and, and hold her when she's here. So I will likely be calling into the next board meeting. But, um, but all that is to say, too, I, I have heard from so many parents who are grieving so much that has been lost this year. And... Um, and I understand that. I am grieving that I can't go to the hospital and wait in the waiting room and you know have my son come out and tell us we're grandparents. So all of those moments in life, um, we're losing some of them. So I know we're all giving up a lot, and there's a lot of grief involved in that. But um, we're pulling together. And I, I think if people will wear masks and stay six feet apart, we'll get through this and, and have a great school year. So... Um, Thanks to everybody who's been working so hard on all of this. Well, today's my daughter's 16th birthday, so I just wanted to wish Piper Patsy a happy 16th birthday from the dais. Um, I can't wait to have birthday cake later, Piper. Um, I was on my way to an executive meeting last week, and I was involved in a car accident, um, and I'm okay, obviously, um, but kind of along the lines of just what a kind and caring community we have. Um, the principal of Deemer, um, Rob Shackelford, saw the accident and um, he stayed with me until police and paramedics arrived and that was just so nice. Um, and then a Lenexa police officer saw, he was getting my driver's license out of my bag and he saw my SMSD badge and was like, going on and on about what an awesome um, school district we have. His, he has two kids at West. And so, you know, just in moments when, you know, you're just in a really yucky, crappy situation, just the kindness that you feel from our community is real. And I'm just really grateful for that. And so um, thank you. Thank you to every board member who reached out to me and, and Dr. Fulton as well. That just means so much. So we do have a special community. We have a community who cares for each other, and it's very evident. Um, I just also wanted to echo the parents making difficult decisions. You know, we realize that these decisions were difficult to make, and um, we thank you for making them, and there's no bad decision. You did not make the wrong decision for your child. Um, and teachers, I know you're gearing up um, for the school year, and I know you're gearing up emotionally um, for the school year as well, and that is not lost on me um, or I think any of us. So we appreciate the work that you know um, teachers and SMSD staff members are doing um, to make this year a positive year for kids. So thank you. And Mr. Stratton, do you have any closing comments for tonight? Sure, I'll make them quick because everyone summarized it so well. Uh, my comments would be a big thank you to all those that presented today. Um, when Dr. Fulton came to our district, he repeatedly said that uh, decisions will be driven by data. And I think this meeting today typified the need to be reminded that we have to have good data to make decisions. And everything from the community survey all the way to the, uh, the health department data, this is all very important uh, for making decisions. But what I'm reminded as we watch this meeting play out, it doesn't mean the data gives us all the answers. And that's what we're there for, uh, seven elected board members, 
trying to take as much of this data information as we can and make the best decisions that we can. And I always like to say, you know, using our heads, but also using our hearts. And I think we've done that, and I think we'll continue to do that. But it's my way of kind of wrapping up the meeting and saying thank you, Dr. Fulton, for that uh, important leadership provided. It was, it was evident from your entire team that that data and that information is so important for our decision-making, and collectively we're going to do the very best we can. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. So on that note, uh, the next regular meeting of the Board of Education will be August 24th, 2020. Um, we attend a lot of meetings and events, or we used to once upon a time. Um, and if you want to see a list of the events that we will be attending virtually or potentially in person, um, that is on our website. Thank you all for being here tonight. We appreciate you.